a somewhat anecdotal cheers. Uh, so I was going to the Family Video, which is a video store because I live in a time bubble, but there's one near my house uh, to rent a DVD. And as I walked up to the counter, uh, the attendant said, hey, weren't you my creative writing teacher in college? And I said, oh, yeah, I was. And he's like, you know, I just reread that. He talked about Rose for Enemy. So we had a nice, lovely discussion about Faulkner. And what he didn't do was comment on the fact that I was running Fate of the Furious as his <laughs> former creative writing teacher. And that is a class move. So to nameless family video attendant that didn't mention the fact that I was running a Vin Diesel movie, despite the fact that I taught you about narrative, um, that's pure <laughs> class. And cheers to you. Hi everyone, I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is the Mix 6 podcast where we have six beers and have six conversations for you to listen in on. Uh, If you are backing us at the $2 level... Thank you very much. If you're listening to this for free, also thank you very much. We enjoy your attention and uh, time. So uh, before we get started, we uh, have some news. So I've written a book called Red Markets. It's a 496-page RPG about a zombie economic apocalypse. And uh, it's available for pre-order on Backerkit, and you should go buy it. Please, thank you. Make uh, that happen. We uh, kind of mention it a few times. on Once our or twice? Po- Once or twice, yeah. yeah. If you've listened to the podcast before, <laughs> maybe you heard about it. Yes. Uh, uh, and now that that shameless self-promotion... Also, wait, away, I don't know. We're not done with this yet. No, because no. only like a week ago... So I know, I know. And this is the best part. Because like, I'm going to say a nice thing, and I know that it makes you clench so hard when I say don't nice things that. about you. So I'm, I'm enjoying this. This is about me now. Um, <laughs> I'm the captain now. Okay. Uh, like, about a week ago, you put out an update uh, to kind of give everyone a rundown of what happened with international shipping, which was a debacle at least. Um, and in there, towards the bottom... You uh, kind of like on the nose addressed some of the internet hate that you had received because of some international shipping debacles. And I just want to say to you, I think that tip to toe, as someone who taught argumentation, wrote about argumentation, is obsessed with argumentation, that was one of the most comprehensive, complete, well-written takedowns of both a substantive issue and – and another substantive issue that I have ever seen. And I, I just want to celebrate you for that. Thank I thought it was really fucking incredible. Um, also, to everyone that was an asshole to you, fuck off. It's kind of how <laughs> yeah. I feel. Yeah, it's kind of how I, I feel about Give Kill your money and then fuck off forever. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, okay, that's producer Ross. Don't put that on the book. Yeah. <laughs> Not a pull quote. Yeah. Not a pull quote. Actually, if you could just like edit over that with like a clown noise or something just for like a hot second. No, nope. I'm taking a personal stand. I think that's <laughs> great. In the okay, great. Well, please he, buy the book. Despite what producer Ross right. says, he's he's technically also very grateful. I was only talking about the asshole. Okay, it's true. That's yeah, right. Jesus, Caleb, read the. Read uh, I gotta the bring text. In, I gotta bring side people in for that. I yeah, that's right. I can't yeah. say it myself. That's right. Uh, anyway, buy my book. Yes. Uh, uh, anyway, so we do beer rating on this podcast as well, in addition to shameless <laughs> self promotion, uh, and we rate our beers on a five point system that uh, it shifts in terms of title every week. Uh, so Spencer, how are we rating beers this time? Okay, so to give you all a glimpse behind the curtain and let you know when we're recording it's like day two or three of comic-con i'm not really sure anymore it's all just like one big glob of stuff of information for me at some point but 
it's just it, now we're at the point now where everyone who's not at Comic Con is just shamelessly watching trailers over and over again every time they launch. So our rating system this week is Comic Con trailers, things that have come out of Comic Con that we've either been super excited or the least excited about. And there's some least excited about in here. Let's let's yeah. be honest. So as you know, if you listened before, we rate our beers on a one to five point scale. A one is a beer that has changed your life in the negative. It is objectively one of the worst beers you've ever had. You never want to touch it again. Much as the trailer might stop you from going to see the film in the first place a five on the other hand, or tv show or tv show that's right because comic-con it does not discriminate a five on the other hand is a beer which has changed your life for the better it has redefined what drinking a beer could be for you much as a five trailer may be a trailer that you watch in terms of cumulative time as long as the film or tv show might also run <laughs> yeah. which is indicative of the five that we've got today yeah. so here's the rating system a one and i think we can all agree what the fuck will smith a one is bright what I, a beer where you are simultaneously confused and I hurt. am excited. Okay, so I just want to understand there is a the, his partner is an orc and is also a cop. Yeah, is that is that the premise? It, How are you not on board for that? Be, okay, so because sometimes I drink He's, his partner is an orc. Sometimes I drink a beer and I put it down and I go. Did I just drink a beer, or did I just drink a hot ball of garbage? You know, when I watched End of Watch, I was thinking, this was a mistake. I was not thinking, I would like to see this movie, plus Shadowrun. Oh my god. I was not thinking that at it's all. It's literally Shadowrun. And that line about magic wands being nuclear weapons that grant you wishes... I'm I, on board. Uh, right. God, so everything no. that you've just said, producer Ross, <laughs> is exactly <laughs> why it's a one. Yeah. So right. I, I, feel, Ross, I feel also, I just want to clarify, the, the, the part, Will Smith's partner in the movie, his, his the, not a best friend, but like the partner that he has to work with, is an orc. Right. And they are cops. Yeah, I'd not heard that. <laughs> All right. Any of that bit. All so right, right. producer Ross again, coming in his hype man, backing us up. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Much appreciated. So now you see why that's one. I yeah. also love terrible movies, so maybe <laughs> I'm not the best judge of this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I assure you, I, I, I was settled on on that before you said it <laughs> a two is a beer that's like bad but it's better than the worst beer that you've ever seen so this is a two by way of having gotten better the new four minute clip of the justice league is not the hot ball of garbage it's the most fragrant rose on the compost pile you can't really forgive its origins or what it's coming from or really trust it too much but like hey, right. it's looking pretty good Look, i still i still like probably won't see it but this is the <laughs> first thing that i've seen where i go ah okay i could see it though later and i wouldn't maybe be i'm not gonna go see it, it but i also wonder maybe superhero films aren't over whereas with every previous piece of news that's and right. footage i've seen from it is like oh no we're done that's like right. no this is what kills it right yeah exactly <laughs> this is so, the end so whereas whereas everything else i'd seen uh, of the justice league about the justice league was a one maybe even a zero for me it existed beyond the scope of bad yeah this was the first time i was like well okay it's a two I if i had to have a bad beer that's right. gonna be this one that's right a it's three the least bad this is your baseline beer, the three. This is the thing that, like, okay, this sets the standard. Yes, I want to drink this, right? And if I've got to drink something, I guess I'll drink this stuff. A three is Ready Player One. And and to be clear, the film itself could be a five. The trailer for me in terms of hype was like, a okay, yeah, no, that, that confirms what I was looking for. I'm going to go see that movie. Much like a Bush Light in the scope of beer confirms, okay, I just had a beer. It was so much darker than I expected. Yeah. It would be higher for me, but it was so much darker. Like, the tones... I, I, I expected, like, a colorful, 
cartoon romp when right. I read that. Yep. And it's just, uh, and especially with this homage to the 80s constantly. And with Spielberg doing it. Yeah, but it's got like this color palette from AI. Like, yeah, yeah that that's took it down <clears throat> for me. Also, a J.J. Abrams level of lens flares, it felt like. Yes. And maybe maybe I was watching, watching something different. Mm-hmm. A four, though, now we're getting to, now we're getting to mm. beers that you want to go find, mm, right? Yes. Beers that you're going to go out of your way for. Um, the four today is the trailer for Westworld Season 2. Ugh. So excited. And, and here's why it's a four for me. So at the end of Westworld, I thought if Westworld Season 2 isn't just them running through the other layers of that building. And so Samurai World yeah. and all this other shit. And then you see the trailer for Season 2 and you're like, oh, no, it looks like they're keeping the same characters. It looks like they're kind of sticking to the end narrative that we get in the finale of Season 1. And I'm watching it and I'm like, okay, great. I'm glad they took their idea and not my idea because yeah. it improves on what was already a great thing for me. Mm-hmm. So super excited. And then to end the trailer on fucking Ed Harris looking bloody as like, fuck. But like you can tell he's smiling. He's smiling. Yeah. You can yep. tell he's smiling, but like it's not a smile. Like the face has forgotten how to smile, but there's something in the eye. Yeah. yeah. It's like I get to kill. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Well, he broke the code, right? And like that's kind of the fun thing. Yeah, here, I get so. to kill now. It means something now. <clears throat> yeah. And then there's a five. The beer which will transform how you feel feel about things i just want to say something I, I, we've all talked about this maybe i've talked about it on here i'm not totally sure i i, I forget because alcohol and age um I thought that season one of Stranger Things is arguably outside of the first season of True Detective the greatest the greatest serialized television show i've ever seen yeah and when they announced that they were doing a season two i was actually depressed because i thought you can only ruin this near perfection but the Super Bowl ad was solid. The Super Bowl ad was solid. And this is amazing. I have watched this trailer in the last 12 hours, like seven or eight times at this point, because it might look better than <laughs> anything that I saw in season one. The best use of the th- song Thriller oh my God. I've ever seen since the Thriller music video. Also, like, if you want to get me in bed, wear a Ghostbusters outfit, okay? <laughs> Just like a brown jumpsuit, okay, that says like Venkman. Or it's an oddly specific fetish, but it, it's powerful. It, but I'm I'm honest it's about not it. Oddly I, specific at all. Right, I own it. Right at I this ass, point, I assume yeah. that's true of ninety percent of the world. They're just unwilling to admit it. The Stranger Things trailer just like does everything it needs to do to get a person like me who's convinced they can't do anything they've. They can't do anything better than what they've already done and go. Oh well, okay, maybe they did. D- starting off on Dragon's Lair. I the, like the nostalgia that Ready Player One's trailer was trying to get out yeah. of me. I, they got it. It better. was all used. It was all used up when I saw Dragon's Unbelievable. Lair. Unbelievable! It just burned through my entire supply because I was so excited to see them playing Dragon's yeah. Lair. Uh, yeah, no, I, I am. It looks eldritch and Lovecraftian right. and hyper eighties. I am and, taking that that day and the following couple days off work. Don't at me. I'm busy. Is how I feel about <laughs> yes. Stranger Things season two right now. We've spent uh, far too long talking about our ratings. I, I, I have comments okay. though. Okay. Uh, Jesus Christ! I'm kind of surprised that the Inhumans and Thor Ragnarok trailers are not uh, present. All right. To be list. fair, Thor Ragnarok made it into the pre-discussion. It yeah. got bumped for Westworld season two. Yeah. Okay. okay. Inhumans. And I like the previous Thor Ragnarok trailer a lot, so right. Comic Con didn't revel me. Right. Inhumans does not reach integer levels. <laughs> right. it, it's lower can than it one. Be below, uh, it might be below zero. Do you know? Oh, wow. Do you know what it's still above though? What Defenders because it features Iron Fist. That's how <laughs> yeah. I feel about that. That's okay. also fair. Whoa! Yeah. Yeah. But they're going to get better showrunners for Iron Fist, and mm-hmm. like they're going to do things like it's going to not be bad anymore. Right? Yeah. Still has Iron Fist. So with that, <laughs> uh, we're going to grab some beer. We'll be back in just a second to talk about our first topic, which is of course dissecting our fun or board game topic. We'll see you in just a few seconds.
Spencer, what are you drinking? So in our first rating today, I've got from Deschutes Brewery, which I have talked lovingly about in the past. They have some phenomenal beer. Um, this is something that neither of us have tried before. This is from Deschutes. It's the Swivelhead Red. It's an India-style red ale. And I'm going to be totally honest with you. I, I think that we've been open... I've fallen out of love with IPAs after a long tryst with them, you know, a, yeah. a sordid affair, but mm-hmm. but a long one nonetheless. Um, this still drinks with some of the hoppiness of an IPA, but it's got that malty sweetness of a red over the top of that aromatic uh, hop taste yeah. that I really, really adore this beer. I'm it, all for an IPA that doesn't have IBUs beyond the realm of the human tongue's ability to taste it, Like, uh, and uh, this is one of the rare ones that aren't like caught in this just game of bitterness chicken yeah where it's just like well i'll I'll go 15 million like i'll i'll make your face implode with how bitter it is yeah like yeah i I, i'm a big fan of it yeah i would i would give this a four um this Mm -hmm. is not a beer that is going to change my life but this is a beer um that i would this is something i noticed yesterday this is a slight departure from the conversation for a half second as i was shopping for beers yesterday for today's episode i'm walking up and down the aisles and I'm I'm struggling to find – there's clearly a lot of beer we've not tasted, which is the great thing about beer, one of the great things about beer. But um, so much of the beer category right now is IPAs, mm-hmm. and I go, oh, man, I just don't know. I've had a lot of those, and I don't want to drink them again. This beer is a beer for me that I would go back to find again. Yeah. Um, and, and I would probably Much buy a like six- the Westworld season two. That's right. And I would buy a six-pack of this, which is – I cannot say for a lot of beers anymore. I've either yeah. become more discerning or, frankly, just more annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a hard four for me, which is a Westworld season two. And while I consume this, Caleb, what are we talking about? Well, in Dissecting Our Fun, our segment where we talk about board games, uh, Maddie suggested that we talk about Unfair, and she also bought the game for us and sent it to my house. So if you're going to both suggest and enable, it's a pretty pro tip to yeah. get on the podcast. For those of you who have been looking to send us beer, but because of the law, that's been difficult. <laughs> if you want to send board games instead, we'll play the fuck out of those things. Yeah, yeah. very true. So anyways, we've played a bunch of Unfair lately. Yes. Um, uh, so Unfair, uh, it was a game kickstarted last year, I believe. Uh, it's designed by Joel Finch. Uh, it is produced by Come On. Uh, it is a very interesting game. It's a it's not really a deck builder, but it's a variable deck game in which you are combining decks of different themes like vampire, robot, pirate, jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, you're combining them to form a singular theme park that you are building with everyone else on the table, but you're competing to have the best section of that theme park. Um, so you combine all these decks together, and you're building this fun fair with various themes, and you're dropping attractions, and you're building upgrades on them. Hiring um, workers. Yeah, hiring workers. Uh, and it's got a lot of variable economies in it. There are guests, of which you're capped, but guests earn you money. Money buy you attractions, with earn you more guests. But all that is separate from um, victory points, which you get by fulfilling blueprints with her like achievo cards but there's a high stake to getting those achievement cards because if you get them and don't fulfill them you get a negative 10 on your end game um so there's a lot of different variables and it's surprisingly deep uh also i've learned that in addition to the six starting decks that we got in the base game um the plans are to do a deck for every letter of the alphabet that seems absurd yeah 26 total which just seems bananas i don't even understand that do you know what q is I do not know what Q is oh, yet. Well. I hope it's just a queen-themed deck. It's like <gasps> Freddie Mercury's... Or Red Queen from, you know... Oh, Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, yeah. Mayan <gasps> Quetzalcoatl? Oh, my God. Quetzalcoatl hype. 
<laughs> I just like saying Quetzalcoatl. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> you guys are too drunk to do this. <laughs> All right. Uh, but um, I really like the game, and we played it. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, cause. absolutely, because I know that we want to talk about this game on two levels. Yes. Right? One, one is kind of like the nature of the gameplay itself, and then the other is... The meta reaction to this game I find almost as interesting as the right, game itself. The evaluation of the game on the internet has, mm-hmm. has been surprising to me, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the gameplay a little bit. So um, here's, here are a couple things that I really like about Unfair. So first and foremost, I would not recommend it for someone who's just getting into board games. There are It's a, a level four game. There's yeah. a lot of setup. There's a ton of Take There's down. a ton of takedown. And it's about uh, two hours if yeah. you have four or five players. It, yeah. it can it can last a little bit long. And another reason I wouldn't recommend it to kind of like new or emerging game fans, um, the phases are not terribly intuitive from my perspective. But well-tracked. But well-tracked. Yeah, yeah tracked, and ter- tracked terribly well, and they make some sense. <clears throat> but I don't know that there's a lot of like, well, obviously you would do this next. So I think that you kind of have to really learn and repeat the confines of the game. The amount of time we gained from game one to game two was pretty excessive yeah. uh, because there is a little bit of a learning curve for the mm-hmm. game. But once you get through the learning curve, the game can be run fairly pretty, fairly, pretty fairly efficiently. Yeah. Um, also, the quality of the components and the quality for of the art for a game about building a theme park right. is phenomenal. It's great. Like It's like Fantasy Flight, you know, Space Marines killing Space Orcs level art for like a roller coaster yeah. or... A restaurant. It's, <laughs> it's an it's, Asian fusion place. It's like, exceptional. Yeah it's, yeah, it's really amazing. So one of the things that I'm really liking about the game thus far, um, and we've played it a couple times now across two different days. Um, that and you know I'm a little bit biased because I've won the majority of the games that we've played. No big oh, deal. God. I'll drink to okay, that. Here he goes. Um, is that regardless of how the themes change the game, and they change the game in interesting ways, but yeah. they don't change the core mechanic of the game. Yeah, you can still strategize. You can still strategize. And it seems to me that the clearest strategy here is to maximize the amount of additions or modifications you make to any different attraction that you build. It's a little bit like Cargo Noir in that like the variety of icons on a single thing will score you more points That's right. than a lot of single icons. That's right, yeah. There's some you value. gotta go deep, not wide. That's right. There's some value in building an attraction with six or seven modifications. And, and I think the attractions are interestingly and aptly named. So, for example, I build an attraction at my theme park that is a thrill ride coaster. But the modifications that I can add to that, like comfortable seating or air conditioning, yeah. which make the waiting process more enjoyable, yeah. or a particular twist in the coaster that would make it more fun, each of these things upgrades the guest count, yeah. which my theme park can now attract, which means I get more money because mm-hmm. I'm bringing in more guests, and I'll get more victory points because yeah. I've added more yeah. modifications. So in terms of just being true to the theme, I have not played a lot of games that I thought were just more in line with, here's the core of the theme. Everything that we do has to be relatively close to, if not inside the core, else it doesn't make its way into the into the end game. I think that's pretty brilliant. And I'm so glad you mentioned themes. So one thing I really like about the game is that in Funfair, you set up city decks that are events that affect everybody. The first four are Funfair cards, meaning that whatever happens at the absolute worst, it doesn't have an effect on you. If it does have an effect on you, it's always positive. Additional victory points, additional money for scoring a certain type of building. All positive cards for the first four. And this is your round tracker as well. Then you get to a thing that says public notice. The office for the city is blueprint closed. You move that over. The next four city cards are all uniformly bad for everyone. And those are the unfair cards. Right. And so, so thematically, I think that works great. You build this beautiful theme park. People start using it. It gets run down. People have accidents. Like It becomes more and more difficult to run it. 
Yeah, and that I think thematically is perfect. But in the reaction online, that is what freaked almost everyone I researched about this right. game out. So slight departure for me before we get into the reaction. One one of the things that I really liked about what you just identified, which is the change from things global event cards which are giving you help and global event cards which are really really undermining your strategy. Yes. Um, we recently talked about in a, in a previous episode evolution mm-hmm. and the nature of kind of the organic way in which the universe weeds out that which can survive and not survive. Yeah, there is an evolutionary aspect to this, which is sometimes you build a, a really big fucking theme park, right? Mm-hmm. You build a giant ass water slide that seems really cool, and then a kid falls off, <laughs> and now you got to shut down your giant ass water slide, yeah. right? And yeah. so I think that there are some environmental or social conditions which are applied. To your strategy that you do, you do not get to control. And also, as things get worse for everyone, players start being worse to each other. That's right. Which is, in, you start being more uh, antagonistic towards your competition. That, that's right. So the way in which I think the game s- simulates both the, the fun of building a theme park and different attractions, but also all of the different environmental conditions that go into building a fucking theme park yeah. was pretty phenomenal. But to your point... It's that last half of the game where things start to turn south outside of your control, which has caused what seems like an outsized amount of anger on yeah. the internet. So the way I learn a game is I usually uh, read the rule book, and then I watch a video on it, and then I read the rule book, and then I watch a video on it, and then I read the rule book. Um, every every time I watch a video, it hones my reading of the rule book for more specific areas where I have troubles. Yeah, and every time I find a video, the rule book has determined what aspect of it I want to enhance. And um, in doing so, I found a lot of reviews. So like Tom Piscal from Dice Tower, arguably one of the biggest YouTube uh, reviewers and uh, people out there, uh, a bunch of other blog reviews and board game geek stuff like that. And I found this uniform reaction that I didn't mention to you before we started because I really wanted to see how you and Sarah and Brandy reacted to it going in cold. And a lot of people hate the game because you spend the first four turns building up this fantastic theme park. They like the feeling of that. And then they get super pissed in the last four rounds as everything starts turning to shit. Um, but, like, here's what blew my mind about it. And some of them even hung lanterns on it as if that would, like, argue away the criticism, even though they just mentioned it. It's like, the game is literally named unfair. Like, they had all of these, like, horrible critiques of like how random it can be at the end and, yeah. and I don't feel like it's that random because I feel like once you know that randomness is coming you right. have to plan defensive cards they to be ready you. for it it couldn't be clearer right. it's unfair under like a lightning hellscape cityscape right. in like dark green puke letters it's like it's gonna get nasty at the end yeah. and that's what blew my mind because I knew what that was gonna be right just by reading the rule book, and like everyone was just getting up in arms about it. It's the literal title of the game. Like it's <laughs> yeah. not a byline yeah. like like theme park where you build shit and sometimes stuff goes wrong. Yeah, it wasn't like italicized. It wasn't like at the bottom. It wasn't a footnote. It's it was not in, fine print. It was in size sixty four font across the cover. Like, right. It, it, here's the other thing that really like kind of like. I wonder how many of these reviews were written after the first time you played through it. You know what yeah. I mean? Because, like, so here, here's, how, here's how I think about this. And when you and I were kind of talking about this as a segment, you know, one of the things that you said and what you've got in the show notes even is kind of the nature, the trap of expectations, which I think is the perfect way of thinking about the out, yeah. outcry to this game. Yeah, in addition to being an interesting game, I think people should play. That's right. I think it's an interesting object lesson in, like, how expectation affects how you react to right. a board game. So, like, here, here's here's the analog I've been using to kind of think through the trap of expectation. Like, Munchkin doesn't tell you 
that at the end game, everyone is going to fuck the person winning, and then the game will continue indefinitely yeah, until people are out of fuck you cards. Yeah, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but if they did, yeah. right? Right? If the game wasn't called Munchkin, but it was called This Game Won't End Until People Run Out of Fuck You Cards. Yeah. I still think the Fuck idea... Fuck you until I go horse. A Munchkin right. game. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that, like... I, I think the idea, then, that you would get on the internets and go, I really didn't like the fact that this game lasted indefinitely until someone ran out of Fuck You Cards <laughs> would be, like, a bit outsized in terms of criticism. Yeah, like, this game lasts indefinitely until we run out of Fuck You... In quote. Like, right. yeah. And so, I, so what struck me is that you know, and and you did not tell me. I, I have some complaints about the game. Don't get me wrong. I, I you know I think that I think mechanically there are some things that I wasn't crazy about. I think that I, I didn't love all of. There's the a cards. lot of repeat cards in the decks that I think could go into a standard deck. Yeah, and, and that serves very little like, function. Yeah, and it's hard to split it up at the end. It's not perfect, but like the overwhelming criticism of it is just so off base right. and so frequently repeated. Yeah, the <laughs> idea that that this thing. Which is called unfair, <laughs> ended up somehow being unfair in your ability to strategize or respond to some you know event outside of your control. Yeah, that for me is not a criticism. That is an appropriate enactment of the metric. And I feel like it's fitting with the theme, right? Uh, is it the fact that it's a pun on funfair? Do people like, oh, it's just punny? They didn't think it actually described anything in the game. I don't. I don't, just we take puns more seriously than your average person because I, I think that's also true. Because that, that, like that, <laughs> if if true, then that's one thing. But I got to be honest with you, like I didn't look at the the box in the game and go, oh well, like funfair. I looked at the box and I was like, oh, unfair. Well, this is <laughs> this is going to be unfair. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? It was as someone who and you know I don't know if I've mentioned this already, but won the bulk of the games that we've played of this. Um, I'm I, undefeated in evolution. Another game you mentioned. I just you, put it in there. You might say that I am an un, <laughs> I am the unfair champion. Actually, I don't love that title now that I said it out loud. Uh, like, I nothing that happened surprised me. Did it frustrate the fuck out of me? Yeah, there were a couple of moments where I lost big things that I didn't want to lose. Shutting down rides. Yeah. Because yeah. one of the things that happens, for example. Uh, is that like all of your major rides can get shut down? Well, the problem with that is when your ride shut down, people can't ride it, which means you don't get money for it and you don't get passengers for it. Mm-hmm. Well, your singular goal in the game is to get money for people coming to your shit and get people coming to your shit. So yeah, is that unfair? Totally. But that was first playthrough. Second playthrough, I'm stocking up on cards that are like instance uh, negated intrusion. That's right. Uh, I had a cleaner card that was like sacrifice this employee to negate any negative effect, and like I'm holding on to these things for the late game, right? Because I know it's coming. Yeah, like, absolutely. It's, it's deeply random, and that's its catch up mechanic in the last four turns. Yeah, but like you can plan for that. Um, so I, I just didn't understand. I think it's entirely based on expectation. Yeah, I think they saw like. An amusement park game, they expected Roller Coaster Tycoon, they expected to be, let me just build, 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 and get the maximum build I get, and it's going to be a race to see who builds best, and they don't expect, like, a tornado to hit it. Dark Souls, it sounds like. Yeah, Yeah. like, they don't don't expect, like, problems to come from it, even though the game says unfair, because they've, I think, with a theme that has been little used like that, they certainly expect something and not a different aspect. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I think it's an odd reading of the game. I think that it... I'm not saying that there aren't things which aren't just fucking shitty and make the game less enjoyable, but I'm but saying that's that every like, game. they kind of told you in the choice, title yeah. right, that, like, that this stuff was coming. So all of that to say, if, if you have evaluated unfair in your local game store on Amazon and you thought, well, I don't know, the ratings say that I shouldn't buy this, 
uh, we collectively were not put off by the randomness in the back half of the game because as long as you see it coming and you should because it's the title the of the game. The first four rounds about building yourself up as strongly as you can right. for the assault that's in the last four rounds. Yeah. That, no. Once you know that, I think it's highly enjoyable. And, and I, I've, I've just found the game like fun. Uh, and yeah. We've played it with four people. We've played it with three people. I think that it scales well. Um, I would recommend the game if you have a reasonable game vocabulary and you're looking for a new strategy-based game game that allows you to build an economy and then try to protect that economy from other people i can't say enough good things about unfair uh, producer ross you want to say something uh yeah i mean it sounds like it, uh, as a comparison it could be like you know you you find out about this movie and will smith's in it and you, you like will smith he's a okay great all right well, let's in the but second. then you find out his partner is an orc who let's is a go cop ahead. let's go ahead. is there like a is there like a button we can push just to like <laughs> yeah this? we need a big red yeah, one you <laughs> cut me off a few weeks ago and i was celebrating yeah. and now you're just trolling <laughs> us right. or excuse me orking us i need another beer uh on that note we're gonna get more we'll see you in just a second <laughs> Caleb what what is that you are drinking I am drinking uh, Springfield Brewing Company's local oh, very local here 417 hey. Bull Creek Brown Ale a Bull Creek Brown that's their standard brown offering um, it is a standard brown, so this is a uh, Ready Player One for me. That's not bad. It's middle of the road, yeah. Yeah. I like it. It tastes like a brown. It's, it tastes like a brown. Like, okay. It's everything I expected in a brown. Right. It's the platonic ideal of a brown ale. Like, it's not too uh, exceptional to, like, blow my head up or anything. It's right. not bad in any way, shape, or form. It's it's a solid three. It's interesting to me that the platonic ideal of anything for you is the middle of the road. Right? Well, like, it isn't for you? Like, Well, I mean, it's for a brown ale. Like, when I think killed. platonic ideal of a chair, I don't think throne. Ah, uh, but I do like. kind of think, like, the standard by which all other chairs are evaluated is, I mean, maybe that's a three, That's then, it, right? yeah. Eh, like, yeah, know. it's a three. Like, eh, throne know. is a fancy chair. Like, well, yeah. I mean, what do you feel about brown ales in general? Uh, I'm I'm generally for brown ales. Like, okay, but they're a, not your best. Yeah, I generally have a positive connotation. So, like, your platonic ideal, what's your favorite type of beer in general? Oh, stouts. Stouts. Porters, so, like, your platonic ideal of a stout would be a five. No, it's a Guinness. Okay. Which would be a three? Yeah, which is a solid okay. three. Man, I don't know anymore. Like, what do numbers <laughs> But ma- mass effects thing. Like, yeah. if it's a night where I'm drinking Guinness and I've had eight of them. Guinness becomes a five. Right. Like, uh, so, yeah, quantity affects things. What are we talking about? Okay, so um, this was an interesting suggestion. Copernicus suggested that, that in mixed six mock draft, we, we throw out our top true detective pairings. But, we, but these are both real actors for a real show. That's right. And, so, and, so, and, and this kind of comes on the heels of having learned that Mahershala Ali is going to be in season three of True Which Detective. Which I'm angry, is not one of my picks. It's perfect casting, yeah. right? And so rather than use it as a mix six mock draft, because it doesn't really fulfill the characteristics of a mock draft, which we'll get to later, Mm -hmm. it does raise an interesting question about if you were casting True Detective, what would you do? So we've turned it into a binge binger Mm -hmm. today, and we're going to do our top three pairings for an additional season of True Detective. Assume that Mahershala Ali and whomever has already done their thing. Who would we cast in the next season? I'm super excited to talk about this because I kind of see your list and I see We are also assuming that it will be good. Right. Yes. Not not Uh, season two. Yeah. If it's like season two, you know, R.I.P. Mahershala. Right. We lost you too young. That's right. Um, But, uh, yeah. Uh, So we're going to do a binge binger on this. Right. A little uh, bit different. You go first. Okay. Tell me me what you're doing. In my third, which arguably should probably be my second, I think it's actually my second best choice. I'm going to flip things on the fly is what Mm -hmm. I'm saying to you. Okay. So my third choice here. 
Um, one of the ideas that I like about True Detective is, and one of the things that I think season one did terribly well, is put polar opposites together in a really novel, unique way. So I thought, who are two people that I think could absolutely get on each other's nerves, but also pull off some really significant good tension? Mm -hmm. So number three for me, I would cast Mark Maron, who has blown my mind in Glow. God, he's so good in Glow. That's a a whole segment. I can't get started. As a sulking, sarcastic, yet deeply serious individual in ways that Mark Maron I've never seen before. I've never loved a sleazebag more. That's right. That's right. character. Because you're pulling for him, right? Yes, I'm I'm rooting for him so hard. In the same ways that in the first season, like Woody Harrelson is doing all the wrong things, but I still want him to win for some odd reason. And it's not an anti-hero thing as much as it is just like... I don't know. I, I don't have a good explanation for it. But Mark Maron, right? Who, he's better by relevance to this horrific thing he's trying to solve. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And you, you recognize that that's also how he's thinking about his own life. That's and that's it. the mistake that that's destroys it. him. But, like, you still want right. it like, the fatal to flaw. get rid of the horrible supernatural yep. child murderer. Uh, you have to root for it. Yep. Yeah. It's that. So Mark Maron, as the sarcastic, sleazy, doesn't take anything too particularly serious, but there's something underneath there and you can feel it. Paired with... Christian Bale. This is a sneaky pick for you. I, did, I didn't see that one. Yeah. I did not see Mark Maron and Christian Bale. Because I can't think of a man who takes like deeply serious and eroded by his past more intimately personal than Christian oh, Bale. Oh, so you're doing type. So Christian Bale's your McConaughey. And Mark Maron's your sort of Harrelson, yeah, like absolutely. in the dynamic. Okay, I think that would be a good way of reproducing a similar level of tension yes. between what worked really well in the first yeah. season and didn't work really well in season two. But I could see it flip because, like Bale being like ultra hardcore and tortured, I still think he'd be the straight man. He absolutely would. Whereas uh, Maron's like sort of domestic fuck uppery would be sort of the the entrance of the character. That's what I'm thinking. And I think there. it was the reverse in the first one. Plus, McConaughey's like. Yeah. The cut up that you go to watch this show for. Right. And Harrelson's the straight. Okay. But I, I, but I think at the same time, Bale would, you know, Bale, ta- Bale mm. plays uh, overwhelming obsessive dedication to a thing better than almost anybody. Yes. And so I think that it would make him a good fit for the true detective universe, which Agreed. is a larger than life crime mm-hmm. setting. So that's, that's, that's pick number one for me. Or right. pick number three, I should say. All right. So my number three is going to be Elizabeth Moss and Ellen Page. This is really good. I really want to see this. Here's the thing. It's only number three because of Elizabeth Moth's comments about The Handmaid's Tale being not feminist. I know a PR director probably instructed her to say that. I still think she should have said, fuck you. It's the most feminist book that's ever been written. <laughs> um, so, uh, but she loses points on that. But I do want to see Elizabeth Moth, Ellen Page. I think they'd have some um, camaraderie at the same time. That They would have some personality conflicts to keep it going. Uh, Elizabeth Moss and Top of the Lake is A+, and that's basically like a true detective series set in New Zealand that's trying to find its legs, and it never quite gets there like True Detective does, but Top of the Lake is A-plus watching if you haven't seen it yet. Not seen it. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're both very real, authentic women yeah. uh, that I could believe as cops, right? Um, that I could believe as mastermind cops, like doing all the work right. Sure. And, um, that's the thing I want to see. I want to see... Two ladies that are objectively better than everyone in the bullpen. Right. Much like Russ and Marty were objectively better than everybody in the bullpen and True Detective. And I want to see their problems not come from 
their fucked up toxic masculinity, but right. from like the horrible shit they have to fight against and be more heroic for yeah. doing so. That's a that's a great premise. Also, I, you know, I want to throw like kind of another compliment on the Elizabeth Moss pile here. Mm-hmm. Having recently finished The Handmaid's Tale, one of the things that I thought was most intriguing about True Detective is that it didn't let let you skimp on some of the like difficult moments. You were going to yeah. sit and glare at through it. that yeah. shit. I, I, with the exception of the video, and thank you for doing that. And thank you for doing that. That yeah. would that would have crossed a line. But like you know, that four minute scene where they run throughout that neighborhood, right? I mean, you're going to be yeah, there for the with whole it. thing. Stick with the weird silences. Yep, punctuated by gunshots. Elizabeth yeah. Moss in The Handmaid's Tale owns uh, the like grit endurance test. That novel's of, all about uncomfortable quiet. Yep. So and uh, she she just owns that. Yeah. So I think this was a good choice. All right, number two for me. Um, and and this would be, but for the fact that my number one choice are just dream actors put together, number two for me is about chemistry, and it's about late game careers, which I think is kind of like also a nice way of thinking about uh, True Detective season one. People who, in theory, should be past their prime, but have found a new the Mahanasans. Maca- That's yeah. right, the Mahanasans. Yeah, yeah. So for me, number two, Jodie Foster and Michael Keaton. I would. Walk across glass to watch this show. Absolutely, you would. Just to be clear. So, like, just imagine Silence of the Lambs. We're going to go see Homecoming tonight. Yeah. uh, And boy, howdy, are you in for a treat. Right, right. Yeah, because, like, every time I see Michael Keaton in the last 10 years, I go, motherfucker, Michael Keaton is better than I remember. He does everything better than everybody else. He's really great in in any role where he can play a character named after a winged animal. (laughs) Well, but, yeah. No, other guys. Other guy, other like, guys. He blows Will Ferrell off the oh screen. Like anytime Michael Keaton's on on stage, He's like perfect. you've got Will Ferrell, who's like consummately one of the most professional, experienced performers out there. He does a lot of like even serious stuff, yeah. stuff like that, yeah. and a comedic actor. And Michael Keaton's on the screen, and he's just. There's no one else on the stage. No. It's just like he just dominates. When he like, is whisper yeah. yelling at people or or like ignorantly <laughs> citing TLC songs. I mean, the man is fucking brilliant. So so Michael Keaton, who has only found ways to reinvent and kind of like extend the 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 lore of Michael Keaton in in the you know the back half of his career. Yeah. And then imagine, you know, Jodie Foster from Silence mm. of the Lambs 25 plus years later playing a similar role but having just seen even more fucked up I want shit like over a time. scrappy panic room Jodie Foster just beating the fuck out of a suspect. Yep. I want it to get dark like cuz she can do that. Like Jaded. older Jodie Foster, like Elysium Jodie Foster, like the steely eye Jodie Foster, she can do it. Yeah. Like I, J- I, I, I jaded by 25 years of Buffalo Bills. Right? Yes, yeah. Like yeah. just absolutely the yeah. worst of the worst, the inexplicable. Clarice Starling grows up without the terror uh terror of Thomas Harris's bad writing absolutely um yeah no and i think that the two of them playing together because i think both of them are at an interesting point in their careers originally i had scarlett johansson and michael keaton and i thought you know the disparity in age and an experience there might be an odd question for viewers but both jodie foster and michael keaton have had such rich long careers of different things that it would be interesting to see the two of them sack up in a very dark grim you know hyper brutal universe uh, and try to navigate that thing together. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a great series. What's number two for you? All right. I want uh, – this is my this is my weird one. I'll be honest. It is weird, but I love it. I want Bill Murray and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. All right. So I've re- I feel like the first True Detective, which is the only True Detective season I'm going to acknowledge exists, uh, is very much about, like, the nature of belief and how it, like – 
enables you and simultaneously hinders you. Um, you know, like Russ' nihilism sort of frees him to become the best at what he is, uh, whereas Marty's, you know, belief in the American dream sort of continually sabotages his ability to do his job. I want to see that, but on mortality. And so I want to see Bill Murray in full St. Vincent mode, like just a destroyed wreck of a man hollowed out by the job and i want to see him partnered with joseph gordon levitt in full-blown um batman rises like i am cop with personality right. that you find unoffensive like just a cipher of a young up-and-coming man yeah and i want to see joseph gordon levitt's ability to be shaped as a detective in the force just perverted and twisted broken but simultaneously enhanced yeah. by bill murray's just broken Right, hollow. I am going to die soon. Nihilism. Yeah, Levitt would of like le- smoking weed in my backyard, right. full of like dust, like, like Saint. Vincent. Running into yeah. the myth of what it means to be a cop, yeah. to the work of actually being a cop. Yes, yeah, and uh, like a commentary mentality. I want to see that so bad. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And with you also that. get the if you want to comment on the toxic masculinity again, you also get that again a lot with Bill Murray and late kind of things. Yeah, like, and like sort of like. It starts out with uh, Woody Harrelson's character where he is after the time jump. Like, this sort of like, well, this yeah. is what it gets you. Yeah. You know, you're eating TV dinners and looking at Match.com. Right. Like, uh, yeah, I, I just want to begin there. Right. And confront that with someone who's so young and has no reason to expect yeah. that. Yeah, no, I like I like that, that take on it. When I saw your notes on this as I was prepping, um, my immediate thought was, like, Looper, but take out Bruce Willis and put in... That Bill was Murray. my first thought, too. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want... I don't want uh, JGL have to imitate somebody. Yep. I want him to be able to play his own character yep. and still have that sort of dynamic. No, I love it. I think it's great. Um, okay, number one for me, and this was, I'm just going to be totally honest with you, this is not, I can talk this into the true detective universe, but I don't know that I need to. This is about two people who I think play things better than anyone plays anything, and putting them together and just say, okay, if they had a good script, what could these two people do together? So the first one is Vincent D'Onofrio, who I think plays like slightly off-kilter, but also understands at a layer deeper than you at any given time better than anybody. And I'm talking across multiple roles here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that his uh, his performance in season one of Daredevil is exceptional. Yeah, it's a little unhinged, but it's unhinged with a purpose. Um, and, and even like I don't watch a lot of Law and Order, but I did watch some Criminal Intent back in the day. And you know his portrayal of Asperger's cop was really fucking good. Yeah, it was just really good. Yeah. It was there was some substance there. Yeah, Criminal I, Intent. That's right. Yeah, he he plays. Um, he plays whatever that is well, and I think that in the True Detective universe, to, to your point earlier, whoever the people are have to be the best in the bullpen, and there has to be like some subtle non-question about it. I think anytime Vincent D'Onofrio is in the room, there's a non-question that he's the best at whatever it is he's doing, yeah. and I think he pulls that well. But but his would be a like you know I think a delicate form of detecting, which is I think I've figured it out, and so let me characterize it to you in almost this Joker or Riddler esque way. Uh, this kind of like around the edges cop. And I think that to to balance that, you need someone who's going to kick a door down. And literally no one kicks a door in better than Idris Elba. See, I hated this pick when you first wrote it down. And then I talked myself into it so hard. Yeah. I see that dynamic a little different, though. Because, like, for me, what this says is appearance. Mm-hmm. Like, I want... Because I'd like to the see the sloppiest motherfucker. I in want the, room. the sloppiest, grossest, right. shifty eyeiest, yeah. like least presentable bastard in the room. Yeah, 
Uh, and then you get the Dr. Jerk trope of like, well, he's also got to be the absolute best at his job. Sure, yeah. And I want him compared against Idris Elba, but I want Idris Elba to play like a John Hamm character. Oh. I am pretty. I am in the zone. Right. I know nothing else. I get by on this alone. Oh, man. And how could, how could I not? Look at me. I'm all that is man. Yeah. Like, I want that. I want it to be like Vincent D'Onofrio versus that as like... Watson takes credit for Holmes. Tango and Cash. Yeah, like I want I want Aegis Elba to be like, you know, good cop and you know, Vincent D'Onofrio just like Richard the Third, like curled right. up, hissing in a corner. Interesting. Like, yeah, because I was I was playing this as Luther with Vincent D'Onofrio for Because I think Aegis Elba intent. would yeah. really love playing ineffectual. Right. Like, like he does somewhat uh, incompetent. He plays Michael Scott's boss in season four of The Office. Yeah, I think right? he would love to do that because yeah. yeah, he's done the like, you know, st- what's his name and Pacific Rim, Stalker Pentecost or something. Stacker Pentecost. Stacker Pentecost. Yeah, he's, he's done yeah, like, yeah. Right. I am all that is man right. before. And he's got to get tired of that. So right. like, do that as a farce, as a, as a charade. It's a good play. Versus like, this man who is a objective train wreck. A beacon of. But for the fact that he is a true detective. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that that's an interesting take on something that I hadn't thought of throwing those two together. What's number one for you? Uh, I want to see the only person I would rather see than Michelle Wall and... It, they might still get him, and I hope they get him. Michael K. Williams. Yeah. Uh, Omar from The Wire. Yeah. Mm. Face Scar himself. God, I want to see him play a, a, a hard-bitten detective. And then I want to see Viola Davis yeah. uh, partner with it. And I want them both to be done with your shit. Yeah. I want it to just be entirely, uh, like, sexism, racism, like, the mutability of the human condition. I want them both to be... Comically over it. Comically burnt out on it and burnt out together. Just like burnt out, things over. Yeah, burnt out in solidarity and so supremely done with your shit that they just power through obstacles. Uh, I would I would be there with bells on to watch, watch that. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Just Viola Davis just knocking shit off people's desk when she walks by. Yeah, I want it to be bad cop and equally bad cop right. in perfect unison bad coppery. Yeah. Like, I want it to be inescapable nihilism cynicism that overcomes this, you know, problem in society. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are good choices. One, one of the things that strikes me before we move on to the next segment is that Almost every, because what we've been doing here is trying to figure out how to turn tropes slightly on their head, right, to make them work in a true detective universe, which I think is great. Much of what we have described, though, is just inverting the other guy's narrative a little bit here (laughs) and there. And so part of me wonders if, like, the Will Ferrell-Mark Wahlberg pairing... In in in, in a zero pick for in, you? A, in a Nick Pizzolatto universe <laughs> isn't like suddenly the most intriguing show to ever have been written. Producer Ross, uh, I was actually thinking uh, Force Whitaker and Emily Blunt, uh, like Emily Blunt mm, and Sicario. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh God, Emily Blunt and Sicario. Yeah. 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 She's already done a True Detective exactly. show. Right. It's, it was called and, Sicario. And Force Whitaker is Force Whitaker. So yeah. do you yeah. know what I thought you were going to say? You what? Will Smith and an orc. <laughs> well, you know. Okay, and on that note. We're going to grab more beer. We'll see you on the other side. Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is from Evil Twin Brewing, who in the past I've maybe not been super kind to, if I'm being honest. I'm convinced they have an evil twin. That's right. It's all or nothing. And and you can add this to the uh, the the butchered beer name supercut. So this is the Sanguinem 
Arantiaco. It's a sour ale with blood orange added. Now, I like sour, and in theory, I could drink some blood orange stuff. But true to the Steerwater rule, I'm going to try it live. And he's taking a sip right now, and he's thinking about it, and we Oh, that's very good. Really? That. You're not a blood orange guy, My goodness. I would. Does anybody want to get down on this? Yeah, let me get get in on that. That is a drinkable motherfucker right there. I will try that. Guys, in... You know, in at the risk of being Ooh, right, summary that for Ooh. me, that for me is a four. That's a Westworld season two. Yeah, yeah. And frankly, I'm drinking high on the hog today. That's two fours in a row. <clears throat> yeah. Um, while producer that Ross, was not made by the guy with the goatee in the Evil Twin Brewing. It absolutely it was, was made not. by the good one. That was the kind twin. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, that's all on me. Yeah, don't give that back to Caleb. Absolutely not. He, he hasn't earned it. <laughs> Caleb was reaching out. He for was. It. You grubby motherfucker. Um, Caleb, while I drink this, what are we talking about? Uh, so today in Sports Planner, which is your number two pick for today, floating segment voters, uh, Ringo wants to know about uh, Olympic sports and their lack of popularity outside side of the Olympics. Um, I like this one because uh, I have a particular concept and like idea as to why this occurs, but objectively, no less about sports than you. So I want to hear your thoughts on this, Spencer. So first, let me say thank you to everyone. I thought after the great debacle of 2017, in which I spent 97 minutes... <laughs> Describing the NCAA tournament. Everyone loved it. You're we fine. would never pick Sports Planner again. You're way more worried about it than everybody else. To see that it showed up on any list in second place <laughs> was kind of like endearing. I slept better last night having known this. So yeah. thank you to all of you who voted for this for welcoming me back into your lives. Um, okay, so Olympic sports are a little bit tricky for me. Because I very much fall victim to the uh, once every two years, depending on the winter or summer phenomena, Mm -hmm. um, I get really into a couple of things that I don't give a fuck about again for the next 24 months or 48 months, I guess, as it were, until it comes around again. Here I'm thinking of curling, for example. I am the biggest curling fan in the world during the Winter Olympics. Don't at me, right? (laughs) Uh, Men's and or women's gymnastics, right? Different types of diving I'm also super into. But if you were to ask me throughout the course of a given year, like who is the best curler in the world, I would make up some Norwegian-sounding name and walk away. So I don't know. <laughs> Can you give us a Norwegian-sounding name? Absolutely not. I can't because oh. I enjoy this, and I don't. I don't want to offend too many people. <laughs> um, Eric Smielden. Okay, hey, uh, there we go. Yeah, that, you know, it's almost like an orc name. You know? oh, okay, we're not doing that. Uh, absolutely it. not. So, so, but what fascinates me then about that is. I uh, am a huge sports fan, hence sports planner. Mm-hmm. But I find myself falling in and out of love in this really boomer bust way with specific sports entities at defined periods of time, and then I move on. And so, in some ways, the Olympics is a thing which kind of like equalizes all of us in our sports fandom, and that's what I find so fascinating about it. We're all really into sports for three weeks or however long the Olympics is, and weird shit, you know what I mean? Like curling, where people are shoving rocks down an ice floor, functionally, and then we're all really out of curling for the next four years. And so, you know, we're going to change things up a little bit today in Sports Planner, rather than me kind of like run down Olympic, the, all Olympic sports. All Olympic sports and the statistical distribution between their popularity high points and popularity low points. I instead, I thought it would be interesting if we had kind of like more of a global conversation about the nature of Olympics and what it does to sports fandom. 
for for brief distinct periods of time as compared to me kind of like lavishing praise on different athletes you've never heard of. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of how I want to take this today. So from your perspective, you know, you kind of admitted uh, during a recent hot takes that we recorded, you really don't pay much attention or know much about a lot of sports. Boxing and UFC or MMA are kind of at the top of the list. You played some football, so you understand that game. And then, of course, because of Sarah, you pay a little attention to baseball, but I would not con- consider you a sports guy. No. But during the Olympics, are you all in on sports or are you all in on America? Uh, no. Oh, okay, great. Uh, yeah. Because uh, I typically find the sports that are being watched uh, are not the most interesting for me. So if I did judo for years. Right. I right. came just short of getting my black belt. Right. Um, they never air judo, even though I find it deeply interesting and fun to watch. Like, people are getting slammed into the ground. But we're going to watch every single heat of swimming. We're going to watch people that we can't see obscured by water swim back and forth in a pool, and it's just, it's just not for me. Um, so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really do for me. I don't get Olympic fever. Uh, my thesis for this, and why I'm glad you selected this as a sports player, is that I think the Olympics lays the primary mover behind sports fandom bare because I think it's tribalism. Sure. Because I think when the Olympics starts, you take sports that are typically wildly popular. You take things like basketball. You take things like boxing that people will watch and pay to watch over and over again in the USA. Typically not the most watched, at least not since the 80s uh, with the hockey scare or or like the 90s. Or the the dream dream team. team. Um, Typically it goes by the wayside and no one particularly cares because the tribal aspect of it, my city beat your city. The guy from my block beat your block sure. in boxing goes away, or at least it's a weird context. Yeah. You, you've taken this local na- this local contest yeah. and made it a national thing. Right. Whereas you have bob splitting, with no one gives a goddamn shit about ever during the year, and you strap a flag to it, and it becomes us versus them. Everyone's watching it now. Everyone cares who got the gold. Sure. And then the second that sort of tribal contest narrative goes out of the way. Eh, I don't care. Like, where do you get all that ice? Sure. Like, that seems like I don't want to live somewhere that cold. No one ever watches it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you on that. That the you, you know what you're calling tribalism in the context of the Olympics is nationalism, right? That the nationalism thing takes. Yeah, over. it's just a different tribe, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, but like when you switch what the tribal conflict is, right? It confuses people. Yeah. So basketball dips in popularity. That's right. Boxing dips in popularity. But when you take something that had no tribal component and add a tribal component to it, sure. my nation versus your nation, holy God, everyone's juicing up with steroids. Yeah. Everyone's like watching nonstop. Yeah, it's, it's the it's world, a ratings the world Cup yeah. syndrome, right? Like, yeah, you know, Bob Costas is there. Like, yeah, we were into it as long as that narrative's there. And the right. second that narrative is removed, yeah. no one gives a damn right. about pole vault ever again. Yeah, like 20% of Americans watch soccer throughout the course of a year. 95% of Americans watch soccer during the World Cup, right? yes. like that kind of thing. So I think there's there's like definitely... Whereas, and I don't know it. about this, I wonder if soccer uh, viewing goes down during the Olympics compared to like during countries that have like sure. full-blown like Manchester needs yeah. to be we're, so-and-so. We're like, re- yeah, like once the tribal context changes, I wonder if that doesn't affect soccer viewing. Yeah, so what you've done is you've said that kind of the nature of sports changes from the specific competition rather to to the the competition as a representative of some tribe, I, right? I, yeah, I think sports fandom is based entirely or mostly on tribal conflict. Right. And I think that shifting that conflict narrative confuses some people to the detriment of the sport. Sure. But adding it where it didn't exist, yeah. like gymnastics as like 
fuck you, America's the best. Right. Look at, look, oh God, look right. at that routine. Yeah. Look at that floor routine. USA, USA. Like when right. you add a conflict to something like, which uh, a physical event that can't hold conflict, like gymnastics, yeah. that gets people interested. And the second that's removed, right. no one cares about sure. gymnastics. Sure. So I think that's definitely part of it. I, I would say that makes up the bulk of what I think is the interest around sports every two years, depending on the yeah. winter or summer change. Yeah. I think the other thing that you've not not quite touched on yet, which is the thing which gets people interested in sports they're otherwise not interested in but for the Olympics, is that the Olympics are capable of taking the narrative of competition out of the team setting and into the individual setting. Mm -hmm. And that's important because in the Olympics, individuals can compete across multiple events. Yeah. So, for example, whereas people root for the Cleveland Cavaliers or the Golden State Warriors, or in my case, the Kansas City Chiefs or the Kansas City Royals, throughout the course of a season. You're rooting for Michael Phelps. I'm rooting for Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps can compete in 11 different events. So I can root for him to win in 11 different things. And so now the interest is off the team and rather on the person. And because the person is not bound by. That's right. As an avatar. That's yeah. right. And the Olympian can compete across multiple times in the Olympics. And mm-hmm. so I think it changes the way in which we think about sports, right? I go back to the last uh, round of Summer Olympics where, A, all Americans are watching for Michael Phelps to break more records, right? His own records in terms of amount of medals, et cetera, et cetera, amount of golds, <laughs> which you know clearly he wasn't going to do. But we're also looking for Simone Biles, right, to be the first American woman who's going to win or or the first female gymnast who's going to win all of these gold medals across a variety of different events. Mm -hmm. And so what the Olympics does is it takes events, A, that we're not familiar with because we don't see them all the time, right? There there is no, you know, Kansas City insert name of gymnastics team that we watch compete every week on a national scale. So it, it takes these events that we're not otherwise aware of or attuned to. And it gives you a singular narrative, a person who can tie all of those disparate events together to a singular narrative, which is can this person on my tribe be the first person to get gold in a variety of different events? And so I think it, it, it I think resituates that fit, the team I think narrative. Because I look at boxing, like um, it's always about the individual, right. even though there is some tribalism as to what neighborhood or what city they came up in. Sure. And then you move it into the Olympics in which that individual is competing on a national team yeah, of absolutely. boxers. Right. And no one watches ever. Like, it's completely untelevised yeah. at certain points. you got to go to ESPN, the Ocho, at that point to look at it yeah. because, you know, you've lost the individual in there. So I, I like the sort of a, the disillusion of the team for the the great man, great woman of sports right. theory. It, it, it's, it's in some ways, I mean, in some ways it's the American dream, right? For us people in the States, it's the... the fuck you, everybody, I'm great. You, well, I'm going to go live on the frontier by myself. No, not, not, not necessarily fuck everybody, right? Because I think that's kind of like the, yeah. the negative version of that. But the positive version of that is like, I can be greater than, right? Yeah, and so, so the, the, in, the individual story both pulls on the tribalism narrative that you've identified, but but because there are so many events in which the individual can participate, we get so many more opportunities to see that narrative win. And so I think that it makes a really interesting use of just redundancy. How many times can we talk about this person as a representative anecdote of the American dream, which is a tribalist dream in and of itself, yeah. right? And so this, the, the events, the sports uh, that you know Ringo has asked about 
those things are but vehicles. And 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 really in some so ways So that's our answer for Ringo then like right. what explains the difference between high interest and then low interest They're in the majority of time? Yeah. It's a shift of it's a shift of context right. both in tribal narrative and individual versus team narrative. That's right. It, yeah. it, it it for us changes the narrative of what it means to compete on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. in really interesting ways in that it celebrates the best of what we'd want to celebrate as part of a community or a tribe. But it also gives us an opportunity to point to very specific examples over and over and over again of the tribal narrative working. And, um, you know, the NFL and the MLB and the ML, uh, NBA and the MLS, they don't do that as much because you're supposed to lose the concept of the me or the I in favor mm-hmm. of the we. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a singular instance repeated time and time and time again. But sports fandom in many ways is about seeking narrative in a set of random statistical occurrences. That's right. And um, <laughs> you are – the tools to create that narrative from the random statistical occurrences – Change right. fundamentally between right. the Olympics and not the Olympics. That's right. Producer Ross, I see that you want to say something, but I swear to God, if Will Smith or an orc comes up, I will throw your I, laptop. I will pour my beard down on all of your equipment. We will shut uh, down the podcast. Whoa, whoa. Rude. I will put my own rude. <laughs> First off, rude. Uh, two, uh, actually, Netflix is actually doing a documentary called Icarus. Have you seen the trailer for this? Oh, no. about the, the, uh, the Russian, Russian doping? Sporting, yeah. uh, oh. and, uh, doping. And the yeah. multiple attempts of Putin to kill that man. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So if you want to see, like, I mean, going back to Caleb's point on nationalism slash tribalism, like, like, there are some nations willing to kill Mm -hmm. for that. For sure. For those gold medals. Yeah, it's war by proxy. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it just proves that Netflix is a fine venue for... Don't do this. (laughs) Don't do what you're about to do. We are done with this segment. Caleb is getting a beer, and we are on... We are on... And an art cop. All right. Caleb, what is that? Well, this is going to be like reciting the FFA oath. Okay, um, this is New Belgium in collaboration with Anne-Francoise Villar de Vent Orval Spiced Imperial Dark Ale Aged on uh, White Oak Spirals. <laughs> Fuck me. Are that you trying this live? Ridic- I, I mean... <laughs> I've got I've got eight more lines in the title, so I guess I'll try it live. I bought now. it exclusively because right, it was like a sense. novella. I, what the fuck is a spiral? Like, is that a, it's like a, a white barrel? oak spiral, nonetheless? Yeah, I mean, is that like a barrel or is it? Like- it's a three. It's Ready Player <laughs> One. I drink it. It's a pretty good imperial dark ale. It's spiced, but it's not anything that's blowing my mind. Um, it's off from the Lips of Faith series, because that's what they that needed series. more titles. It's a great series. Um, yeah. It's from New Belgium. It's a great um, series. Yeah. I feel like I'm introducing, like, uh, the Dragon Queen in Game of Thrones. Like, right. Breaker of Chains! Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> all these fucking titles. But it's a, it's a, it's a big uh, it's a big ask for a three. Yeah, I, I agree with you, having just tasted it. Nothing in there is blowing my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it tastes like a... It tastes it's not like objectionable, a dark aside from trying to say right, it aloud. For sure. Okay, well, while you consume uh, that overly-mouthed three, um, here's what we're talking about. Alexandra B. in Ask Mixed Six has sent us quite a question. Yeah. It's- it, a, a question that rivals the length of the beer title. Well, yeah. 
My question boils down to, can Facebook and Twitter be considered legit academic platforms? In my field, there have been a couple of scandals. Recently, they got a lot of press on Twitter, blogs, but these conversations largely happen outside of traditional academic outlets. Many people, myself included, see these conversations as a great way to address issues that are present in the field through an equitable platform without the gatekeeping of peer review, but I can't deny that the substance of the arguments tend to devolve when crammed into 140-character snippets. I guess I'm just curious about what you guys think of academia and popular media meeting up and or how academics can bridge that divide and be taken seriously. This is a great question. It's a really good question. Yeah. There's a lot here. Um, so I'm going to let you jump in first. Um, as someone who has navigated recently the difficulties of depth, nuance, and substance with internet communication, yes, um, which is really at the core of the question, right? Mm-hmm. Can, can you get to the substance of a critical argument given the limited space or modified space of the internet? I want you to jump in. Yeah, so um, I think if the question could be boiled down to like, and I don't think it can be, but if Alexandra B's question could be boiled down to like, does social media have a place in academic discourse? I think the question is unequivocally yes. I mean, as a historical document alone, uh, to get a temperature reading on what the public is thinking about a certain issue, I'm not sure you could do better than Twitter. Right. Um, so I feel like, can it be allowed in the discourse? I don't think you have a choice, but right. I think it definitely should be. As far as um, in the field itself, it's true that I don't think you can have a nuanced academic argument in Twitter. I'm not think, I don't, I don't want to see Kenneth Burke try and write a tweet. It would be impossible. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think he's had a hundred and forty character sentence in his life. That's right. Um, like uh, I, I think that. Uh, however, though, what social media is, at least at this current place and time, proving to be, is a policing structure for bad actors in academia that didn't exist before. So, like, uh, freeing yourself from peer review also frees you from, like, being right, and I do think there are elements where this has been uh, abused in many cases, where, like, calls to firing have been made placed by, like, ultra right-wing nut jobs that, like, get enough pile-ons sure. to affect administration, and yeah. so I do think there is a negative aspect to it. But, I have to admit that these are obscure, closed-off institutions that nonetheless do have a high impact on society. And I do like the fact that, like, if your professor or the head of your journal is a racist, sexist, misogynist asshole, you can try his ass in the court of public opinion, and it can have an effect that objectively helps the discipline. Totally agree. Um, So I do feel like uh, academia, uh, while it's going to struggle to incorporate this into, like, citable material in terms of social media aside from like man on the street sort of interviews kind of stuff um i do think that as a last resort i have done good work i have good ideas it is being suppressed because um my racist institution mizzou um is like you know actively Mm -hmm. doing things and i'm gonna throw this to the court of public opinion and they will suffer for their crimes yeah i like that that's there sure like i even though it's been abused at certain points i do like that it exists because that wasn't something that existed in academia for a long period of time and i think it stifled the conversation in a number of disciplines absolutely agree so for me this question is interesting um because it assumes that two things are running into one another that that in theory would never have to run into one another and so the first thing the first trajectory here that intersects is what 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 is the institution's role in academia and how the institution kind of forces you to protect yourself. So mm-hmm. the nature of tenure, which is the God term of an academic life, 
is such that people seek, have sought over the years, new and creative ways of publishing ideas, which has done two things. One, it's increased the number of journals and publication outlets that we think are acceptable in terms of publishing things, which means that important topics have ended up in increasingly niche or fractured spaces. Yes. Um, the second thing that it has done is it, had, it has forced uh, academics to look for increasingly niche arguments mm-hmm. because if you're not moving the scholarship forward on a given thing, you're, not, you're less likely to get published, which means that you have to pick – you know, the fraction of the fraction of a thing so that you can make an incredibly it's narrow the doctor argument. problem. That's right. I can't yeah. make back my loans as general practitioner. That's right. I have to be like a right. baby urinary yep. neuroscience That's right. specialist. I have to cut like a sliver pe- of the hair such that I can talk yeah. about the hair. Yeah. And, and to talk about the hair is important. And so what, what, what it has done in the race for tenure, which I totally understand and as someone who participated, if only slightly uh, in this race, it has forced n- niche, right? Yeah. And niche isn't bad by, by its nature. The, the problem with niche, though, and I think the second trajectory, which is important here, th- this notion of popular media and academic media, what niche has done is it has taken otherwise important conversations, and maybe more to the point, frankly, smart people who should be involved in really global, really public conversations. Niche discourages isms, That's which right. is how the narrative of ideas largely moves forward. It, it like. discourages isms because it forces you into incredibly narrow segments mm-hmm. of a conversation. Yeah. yeah. It, it, but, but in becoming a really, ex, a re, a really expert, uh, narrow a really narrow expert, it means that you're not participating in the broader stuff. Yeah. And I know so many smart people who could be so helpful in public conversations about political discourse, social discourse, cultural discourse, what's happening now in the blogosphere, what's happening now in the fake news world, who have, by way of attempting to protect their careers or ensure uh, a lifetime of the academic world, which is their kind that of that are only pursuit. talking about Robert Browning poems between two years. That's cycles. right. Like, That's right. Yeah. Or or one very particular use of one for very particular medium in one very particular election. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That that people who are necessary to informed public conversations have written themselves out of those conversations by way of protecting their academic careers. Yeah. So, you know, for me, and this is kind of like a transition that I think Alexander's trying to get at here. For me, when you're deep in it, so when I was in grad school getting my PhD, I, I thought to myself that the, the, the ivory tower was a space to, pre, to be protected because there needs to be a protected environment in which ideas without consequence can flourish yeah. because that's how you get to real substance sometimes. But later in life as a a professor and now as someone kind of outside of the community, looking at the community in a more objective sense, I think, yeah, I mean, I get why I thought that when I was there. I don't think I was wrong at the time, but now I think I'm wrong. What's really needed are people who can work as translators. Um, who can take difficult but important ideas and make them palpable and tangible to the greater public so that the greater public has an enhanced or an enlightened understanding of what they're interacting with every day. Is that a privileged or uh, a um, a um, kind of annoyingly selfish position? Yeah, maybe. 
Uh, do I feel bad about that? Yeah, probably not, because I think what I'm saying is I've interacted with too many smart people in grad school who could do too many cool things on a public level, but because they're worried about making sure grad school pays off by way of getting tenure in a later profession, yep, yep. that they're not participating in those conversations because it has no value for can. them. That's right. In the thing that's least visible. That's right. And nobody so, else did it. And yeah. so social media or public media, you know, whatever we want to call it, based on Alexander's question – those are the the means by which some really smart people, and by smart, I don't mean more educated. I don't mean better read or more well-read. What I mean are people who just understand how to explain things really well, which mm-hmm. is sometimes all we need, good translators. Yeah, yeah. Really smart people are not having really important conversations in the right settings because the nature of academia would would actually encourage you not to in some instances – and the nature of social media is so broad that you need so many instances of that occurring across so many different times and places for it to feel like a majority and not a minority Yeah, that it has created a divide between both of those things. Yeah, and that's the thing. You, I'm glad you mentioned tenure because like, there's a big fight against tenure in mm-hmm. the country of late uh, due to right-wing politics. And here's the thing. I think tenure is extremely important if you don't want academia to become what the news has become, which is this corporate-sponsored you have to say what the House says. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important to protect that with the admittedly maybe over-the-top protections of a post-secondary tenure. Yeah. But if you want to check on that, you have a check on that. It's called your phone. That's right. Like, if you if you record your, your professor being a racist douchebag or somebody else sexually harassing you, or, like, you get a bunch of people who are in classes to say that, and, like, your rate your professor forces are in the toilet, and all of your evaluations are in the toilet. It doesn't matter how tenure-protected you are or how many right. you publish. Like, eventually, at a point in time, it becomes... Uh, a burden upon the institution to keep a hold of it erodes your credibility whereas like where it would become a burden on the institution to keep you if you're not up with their politics it's not worth the burden of trying to fire you have tenure protection that's right when you have that and like everyone also hates you because you've been tried in the court of public opinion and failed right it's a check right it's a check that people want when they argue against tenure and you already have it that's right that's why you don't need to dismantle it completely so that when a person discovers like a new theory or a new scientific truth they are booted out because we teach only you know creationism at this school yep like because that's what tenure is meant to create protect it's to protect true knowledge True difference, true originality of thought, yeah, diversity of thought. from the groupthink politics. Right, absolutely. But like, you're, if you want groupthink politics to overset something, throw it up to the court of public opinion, and you know what? It might also change stuff. I think it's a check. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not a rational check. It doesn't. It doesn't always aim at the right targets. But it's something you have, and it's better than dismantling all protections of freedom of speech within the classroom. Absolutely. You know, and my one last thought here, kind of more to the other part of Alex's question, which is uh, Alexandra's question, sorry, which I think is the... the Alexandra. Root, yeah, Alexandra, that's right. Uh, what, what I think is maybe the root of the issue, which is can you have nuanced, deep arguments over popular media as compared to academic media journals, etc.? Sure. Uh, I think it's incumbent uh, upon the consumer to recognize that one tweet rarely accomplish- accomplishes much, but rather it is the it is the the overarching run of a conversation amongst smart people 
through Twitter mm-hmm. that can lead to some nuance and depth. Yeah. So yeah, 140 characters probably can't cut it. But 140, 140 characters, characters times a billion. Strung together among some smart people really trying to figure shit out absolutely can. And so I have seen some nuanced arguments on Twitter. I've seen some incredibly in-depth thought on Facebook. Benjamin Warner, for example, who's a scholar at the University of Missouri uh, and writes extensively about political discourse, often posts both his incredibly in-depth scholarly findings on the nature of political discourse and also has, I think, a pretty um, – a pretty digestible social conversation about the nature of political discourse more generally on his Facebook feed at all times. And so I think marrying those two things, you know, the use of really high level scholarly discourse and the use of, here's an example I saw on television yesterday. Let's talk about what the fuck the president just said. Yeah. Um, I think that that actually creates a really meaningful platform that, to, that other people would not have access to. Yeah. And I think that people should have access mm-hmm. to. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about it. Um, and on that note, I think that we've probably, um, mix six mediated uh, that conversation to death. So uh, we're going to grab more beer, and we'll be back just on the other side. Spence, what are you drinking? So this is from Tallgrass Brewing Company. You know, as a former, uh, K- as a KU alumni. Mm-hmm. Um, w- there are two places in the world that we're not supposed to support. Columbia, Missouri, because it's the home of MU, and Manhattan, Kansas, because it's the home of K-State. You know, mm-hmm. Those are kind of our two peak rivals in mm-hmm. many things. But Tallgrass is out of Manhattan, and i got to be honest with you. This Raspberry Jam, which is their Raspberry Berliner Weiss, is a damn fine beer. They actually have three of these now. They've got a raspberry, a blueberry, and a key lime pie. Oh, I've had some blueberry beers that are amazing. I'm interested to try that blueberry. All of them are really great. Um, my instinct is to give this a four, uh, but in the summertime, so I will give it a four, a Westworld season two mm-hmm. in the summertime when I'm looking for a light drinking six pack that is refreshing and I could drink a bunch of in the summertime, this would be a five for That's me. That's it. Yeah. yeah. This would be a stranger Things season two. This All is right. a really drinkable beer. Dang. And, uh, while I drink this, Caleb, we are we are now deeply in the throes of what is becoming our most popular segment. Please illuminate us as to what we'll be discussing. Uh, we're going to be talking in your hard number one pick. We're talking like forty percent of right, the votes. Right, the mix sixth mock draft. MSMD. Glad you like it. I really like doing them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but we're yeah. gonna have to put like an artificial pause on this. So we did. Yeah, want we're gonna have to take a few breaks. So right. We don't overdo it. We did one in episode eighteen. Yeah. Which, rightly or wrongly, the we audience did one in has concluded that you've won. I disagree. Yeah. And then we did one in our last episode. Was there uh, also an agree? Because I won. it also won. Yeah. And, okay, well, no one I knows also yet. Won. Yeah. No, you no. didn't. It's no big okay. deal. In fact, right. if I remember correctly, I was celebrating when Ross cut me off arbitrarily uh, yeah. for my victory in that it's one. It's because it was sad because I so, won. Now we're on to our third mock draft in like four episodes. So we're going to have to take a little hiatus yeah, we're gonna from to, the, We're going to have to pull back. But feel free to use the hashtag, hashtag MSMD uh, yeah. when you discuss the obvious winner of this one. Yeah. And so today what we've decided to do Alex is, C., he suggested famous literary authors for a heist job. And here's, here's why I like it, because he was worried that famous literary authors exist in the real world, so we couldn't use them. I will accept real people for fictional things yep. are fictional people for real things. Yep. 
Uh, I, we couldn't do True Detective because it was both a real show with real actors. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, you got to have a mix. I'll, right. I'll accept either or, though. Yeah. Right. That's the nature of the mock draft. Yes. Yeah. Such. So what we're doing here uh, is we're drafting real authors for a fake heist job. Like a movie, Ocean's Eleven, Great train Italian yeah. job. Yep. Heist. And yeah. and so I, I like what we've done here. We've, again, hidden our answers from one another. There was a little overlap because we were drafting at the same time. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to do with the mock draft we've decided moving forward is every time we're going to use a different metric, different vehicle to determine who goes first. Mm-hmm. But because you've won the at least the, last the first two. one. Yeah, the last two. Okay. Well, so whatever. Neither here nor there. Potato, potato. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go first this time. Actually, you've been able to go first the last two times, so mm-hmm. I'm going to go first this time. Yeah. We're also, thanks Handicap. to, to Joe Donahue, uh, an avid listener, we're going to change the format a little bit. So we're going to go snake order now. So if I draft first in the first round, you draft first in the second round. Yeah, yeah. Such that so that one person doesn't continue to get the favor. One pick, two picks. That's right. One yeah. pick, two picks. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to start things. My guess is that you and I, actually, my knowledge is that you and I have both picked at least one person who is the exact same. Yeah. So out of order, I'm going to pick the person who I would want on my heist team when shit broke down. Oh, fuck, everything's gone wrong. Who do I want in my corner? It's Ernest Hemingway, and it's not close. Damn. I want a guy who feels comfortable holding a shotgun for fun and (laughs) using a shotgun for purpose. (laughs) Well... Maybe not a purpose is going to do the heist well. So, oh, that got call, dark. Call him, call him the muscle. Yeah. Call him the oh shit. Now we need an enforcer. I want Herm- Ernest Hemingway on In my six team. Six words or less. Yeah, absolutely right. Like he's not going to say much, but he's going to shoot much. Here's the one thing: when we were talking about this segment idea yesterday or whenever it was, you said authors for a fictional heist, and literally the only thing that popped into my mind was, well, I want Ernest Hemingway on my team. Yeah, no, that's fair. Okay. You, you, you snaked him from me. Yeah, I did. Okay, so now you get to pull two. <clears throat> All right, well, um, we're going to be opposed heists. It's going to be like an episode of Leverage. Mm-hmm. We'll Wheaton in it. Uh, it's going to be opposed heists and now since you took Hemingway from me. Uh, but I'm going to pick my mastermind first. Yep. Uh, Gertrude Stein. Interesting, interesting call. If here. she can build all of modernism, right. she can plan a heist. If she can get like the entire lost generation together to make an artistic movement yep. and sort of corral those personalities, she can have like the charts in the room. She can be placing people. She can be the 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 man in the chair. No, I think Spider Man. Yeah, effort. I think this is a I think this uh, or is the a woman in the chair. Reasonably yeah. good decision. Yeah, Mama Stein. She's my mastermind. Okay. Uh, then I'm gonna go with my second pick. All right. I'm going to go with a face. Yep. Truman Capote. Yeah. Well. Okay. If you can be as on fire gay as Truman Capote, like just a blazing flame, you can go into the middle of Kansas in like the 50s and you can get everyone on earth to talk to you about a murder that no one wants to admit happened. You can go like charm a guard. You can go like case a place. Yeah. Truman Capote demands so much attention from people you're not going to see what his actual motives are he could talk to a stump and get that stump to give up its secrets yep. uh so truman capote's my face like with i can't do an accent i'm not philip seymour hoffman i can't i can't even duplicate it he's 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 definitely the face man. no i think that's i think that's kind of smart so i'm going to stick with your order here i'll do my mastermind first and then my face segment so second so for my mastermind i like what you've done right the architect of modernism yeah right? So, in a similar vein, I've gone with the architect of heists. Mm. 
Agatha Christie. She's working at it backwards. Who, I see it. Who doesn't want the woman who has who has literally written some of the most intricate, well planned heists in the history of fiction? To orchestrate their very own heist. So, mm-hmm. to be clear, so far I have Ernest Hemingway as my oh shit man, right? Yeah. We need some muscle, we need an enforcer. And Agatha Christie's writing the plan here. Now, as for the face, which I think was an interesting archetypal selection on your hand, but but is right in line with the nature of heist discourse. I've gone for Langston Hughes. The man is a fucking dreamboat. <laughs> and in his spare time, wrote some of the most scintillating, beautiful lyrics in history. So here is this Greek god among us. He's going to wow them with poetry. He's going to wow them with poetry. And, and all weirdly the while, thin mustache. They're going to be staring at that face like, this Adonis is poetrying at me right now. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a more charming man to walk into the room and go, well, okay, whatever that guy wants. I'm going to give it to him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's next on your list? All right. Um, I get a one pick. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pick my muscle, mm-hmm. repick it because you stole Ernest mm-hmm. from me. Mm-hmm. Total Walt stolen. Whitman. Wow. Leaves the grass. All right. He's burly. He looks like Santa Claus. You don't want to fight him in the first place. He was an openly gay man pre Civil War. Do you know what it takes to be an openly gay man, bisexual human being, in the Civil War times in New York? I'm willing to bet Walt Whitman was just not someone you fucked with. Like, I mean, like he's putting his hand on men's thighs in the middle of a trolley. I'm betting, like, it's dueling times. You're willing to put on a pistol. I'm willing to bet something about looking at Walt Whitman was just like, no, not today. I'm going to let this one pass. He's scary. Uh, He's sensitive. He's got a like heart of gold, uh, deeply intrinsic internal life. You want that of a muscle. You want your muscle to also be like sort of deeply lyrical. Yeah, um, I don't. I in leverage the muscle is also a fantastic country singer. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, you want Walt Whitman. He's deeply American. He's gra- He's Rudy. He's salt of the earth. Uh, and also, like he he was a medic in the Civil War. I uh, I hear like, I hear all of your positive attributes. I really do. I mean, I, I don't think this is a bad. I think it's a clear second place choice because someone stole Ernest Hemingway from you. That person was me. <laughs> because I'll tell you what, a bank guard rolls up on Hemingway carrying a shotgun and takes one look in those dead eyes, and he's like, oh, and, this- and and Hemingway puts the shotgun in his mouth. That's and right. Does it for him. This guy. <laughs> That guard looks at Hemingway, and Hemingway, that guard is like, this dude doesn't care if he Hey, that's the thing. Dies. Hemingway, he's too nihilistic. He's not in it to win it. Whitman wants to live, damn it. Yeah, that, you He know wants what? to suck the marrow out of life, and if you're going to challenge him on that, he's coming for it. This you. is the story of a man who'd originally listed Hemingway, so I don't take your counter-argument <laughs> in stride, sir. Okay. You also get an additional pick now. Uh, no, that was my one. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you do one, now I do two. Okay. Uh, so, for me, what'd you just choose? I choose my muscle. I choose. Oh yeah, muscle. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna set the record a little bit differently. Then I want to go with the person who's gonna draw the plan for you, right? Who's gonna case the joint? Okay? okay. So here's Agatha Christie, right, making a plan. So what we need now is someone descriptive enough to walk into a setting and give you vivid detail, such that you understand the environment in which you'll be interacting. Mm-hmm. And I don't care about the hate I'm about to get on the internet for saying this. In terms of vivid description, someone who's going to help me understand the setting in which I'm about to interact, I want J.K. Rowling. 
<laughs> the fucking Harry Potter books are tomes of description. There is a reason. The She's film, just writing shit on napkins. That's right. The whole time. The whole time. The film looks like the book that you just read because the book is a shot-for-shot explanation yeah. of what is happening to you. I cannot think of a better person... Visual detail. ...to come back to the team and say, okay, here's what you're dealing with, down to the... And don't forget there's a fucking ficus in the corner <laughs> that is three feet tall and probably needs to be watered such that you could hide behind it if you were wearing a reasonably brown suit to mimic its reasonably <laughs> browning leaves. You know what I mean? Okay, uh, your turn. Uh, all right, so I get to pick two, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to pick my uh, inside man as well. I'm going to pick Wallace Stevens, uh, one of my favorite poets, uh, deeply existential, kind of dark, worked till retirement his whole life as you know one of the most uh, modernist poets ever, like late modernism great, worked his entire life up to a retirement of 35 years for an insurance company. He is nondescript. That's true. You do not see Wallace Stevens coming. He has a deep internal life That's that right. you know nothing about. Yep. And he is going to keep it close to the vest. That's I think what you want from an sneaky inside good man. Pick. Sneaky good pick. I'm with you. Yep. Um, and then uh, my next one, I want William Gibson as my hacker. My tech guy. Yep. And who else would I pick, yep. honestly? Yep. He's the neuromancer. I want him jacking into the Matrix and reading me schematics and blueprints. Uh, yes. Yeah. I've gone for the non-technological version of the heist, so I don't have a hacker. Oh, okay. Here. So you're, you're like a Rafifi level. That's okay. right. Yeah. This is some, you have a gadget guy, this not is some, a hacker. This All is right. some Bonnie and Clyde shit. We're yeah. going to roll up in that thing. You oh, know? you're going hot. You're going. To, you're not even like you. You don't care. You're wearing masks. And we, shit. we got some planning. We got an idea. And I we're have, see I how have it a no gun crew. You really. We're do. just doing it through style. Yeah. You really do. Well, you know, but for Agatha Christie. Okay. So in terms of the inside man, I think this Wallace Stevens pick was kind of sneaky good, right? Because because from your perspective, the best inside man is the one who appears so under the radar as to not be on the radar. Yes. Right? Mine, on the other hand, for the inside man, is the person who can most adequately emulate the surrounding in which he is, and we're assuming like some some high economic status here. Mm-hmm. Who better understood how to emulate and enact high economic status than F. Scott Fitzgerald? Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking here is a guy who has written for us the character who is most likely to emulate the hollowness, but at the same time the fanciness of what it means to be rich. Can you think of a better character than one? He's going to be around people you want to steal from. That's right. And he's also going to be from a place in life where he's okay stealing from them. That's right. Even though he deeply wants to emulate them. It's all a show, but he's putting on a better show than you are for what it's like to Mm -hmm. be rich. He'll be the guy in the room that you're all like, damn, he's richer than me. You know what I mean? And there's some value in that. But he's not, though. Right. he wants to steal your jewels. But he's not, though, and he wants to steal your shit. Okay? So that's my inside man. You've convinced me that F. Scott Fitzgerald was actually just a long con the whole and time. He and Zelda were just jewel no. thieves. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> Alternate history novel. That's exactly what it was. The Great Gatsby is actually yeah. just like a not so fictional account of how he made whatever money. Yeah, he I'm going to write a Case Mr. Central. and Mrs. Smith, uh, Zelda Fitzgerald. And I F. see you, green light. Let's right. go. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, and then last pick for me, and then I'll let you go last pick. Uh, so we haven't talked about getaway drivers. I know that we both have those left on our agendas. Um, I think you've chosen an excellent getaway driver here. Let me tell you, in a getaway driver, I'm looking for someone uh, who is terribly precise but can also improvise. And I never made this change on my show notes, so this will be a surprise mm-hmm. even to you. Someone who understands precision. precision. At, I'm a little drunk. At, I'm a lot drunk. At, at, a de- at an obnoxious detail. 
but when precision blows up in your face, can improvise to save your life? I'm going to take Andy Weir, the guy that wrote The Martian. Oh, okay. All mm. right. A book that is both... An engineer. An Detail-oriented. In, a, a book, yeah. A book that is both too precise to be enjoyable at times, but also heavy on improvisation once precision goes out the window. And that's kind of what you want in your getaway driver. Like, yeah, to know the details fair. of the route exceptionally. I want a different way. When the yeah. route no, gets fair. blocked. Yeah. To be like, oh, fuck, well, I know other routes, too, so maybe mm-hmm. I just need to shit all over these plants, and they'll grow of their own accord. Yeah. Okay. I, I went, uh, this is my last pick for Getaway right. Driver. Yeah. Uh, very different than yours. Wait, before you name yours, I want you to know that I debated at length in the shower this morning whether or not it would be in good or bad taste to make my al- my uh, Getaway Driver Albert Camus. Camus. Um, <laughs> and I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, is that the best or the worst driver? And I decided that it would be in poor taste. <laughs> To make him the getaway driver, but not to mention that I wanted him to be the can- the getaway driver. No, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Uh, mine is going to be a completely different aesthetic from Weir. Uh, so I want a getaway driver who's going to escape in a literary way. He's not going to be oh. utterly, utterly detail-oriented. He's going to out-philosophy you Sneaky. in terms of escaping. And I think that's going to be Hunter S. Thompson, because Hunter S. Thompson's the guy who goes 120 at the roadblock. And right. the cops are like... Holy shit, he means it. Let's <laughs> let's get out of the way. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I don't get paid enough for this. He's going to be the guy that knows how to keep it cool when the cop rolls up to you no, and you're you're like he knows how to keep it cool right. and doesn't want to get pulled over cuz he's got a bag of drugs uh-huh. in the back. Uh-huh. Um I, I he's also w- very well armed. He can support the muscle. Yep. Uh he and Walt Whitman could be dual wielding blazing it away happily. Um so I'm going to go Hunter S. I think he could do it. Worth noting that you're also wearing your cat-based Hunter S. Thompson t-shirt. Hunter right S. Now. Tomcat? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Hunter S. Tomcat. Okay, so just for for one more rundown of oh, producer Ross, if you I swear to God <laughs> If you say uh, Will Smith or Hork, neither of which have written books. Uh, no, for the actual high school, you can't have law enforcement officers. Uh, no, what you would have, uh, one uh, mastermind would be Elmore Leonard. Uh, sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the face would be Jane Austen. Uh, ah. I, 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 if you're if you're fleecing rich British people, I think she would be perfect for it. Okay, I mean, so in a specific yeah, setting. In a specific setting. I think Jane Austen's the one you bring in a movie, too, that's like sort of like okay. a foil to the other <laughs> the, face. The Helen Mirren. It's Mira. like the face that faces the face. Like Truman Capote desperately wants yeah. to become best friends with her. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, then for the rest of them, you have Edgar Allan Poe, Ian Fleming, and then Allen Ginsberg as a getaway driver. Because I feel what's, what's Poe gonna do? Just out depress people? No, he does detective stories. Yeah, so he's he's got the procedural down. Yeah, <laughs> barely does detective. Oh, stories. Also, he would actually be, I think, surprisingly good muscle. The answer to one of the detective so, stories was an like he would scare people. Like if you get him <laughs> drunk and like he corners someone, like people are just gonna do whatever they can to get away from Poe. Well, I think but Ian Fleming is a literal like spy. Literal so. spy. I'll yeah, give you Fleming, you made one good decision. I think what was the third agree. pick? Alan Ginsberg is a getaway driver. Nope. Nope. Yeah. Absolutely not. We can all agree producer Ross did not win this. <laughs> Moloch! Uh-huh. Just screeding down. This. All right, yeah. I was so, going to say Kerouac, but I thought better of it. Yeah. So for a quick, I, I was going to do Kerouac for muscle, but he died in a bar fight. So yeah. uh, you don't want that from your muscle. Yeah. Quick reminder, here's what we'd like you to do. Uh, but they would be caught by Will Smith and his orc yeah. cop okay. party. <laughs> Once you've listened to this episode, don't forget to vote for who you think the winner was using the hashtag, hashtag Team Caleb, hashtag Team Spencer. We don't need one for Ross because he obviously lost. 
<laughs> Here was Caleb's team one more time. Gertrude Stein, William Gibson, Truman Capote, Hunter S. Thompson, uh, Walt Whitman, and Wallace Stevens. And here was mine. J.K. Rowling, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Langston Hughes, Andy Weir, and Agatha Christie. Feel free to vote. And on that note, we're going to grab more beers, and we'll be back with Drunk Enough. If this is not a free episode, and frankly, I don't know where we are in our rotation such to make it a free Me episode. Me either. Okay. So we'll do the outro, and it might not be the outro. If you've been listening this whole time and you don't get the next segment, TBD. Uh, they get this next segment regardless. This might They might have not gotten this whole episode. Oh, yeah. They weren't. Or, well, uh, yeah, shit. We're good. You know what, There's guys? No listen. We're, just we're on Twitter at The we Mix We trained them for 20 episodes. We're we gotta... on Facebook.com slash The Mix <laughs> 6. And if you haven't read or reviewed on iTunes, make sure to. And also feel free to back us at any level on Patreon because we love you so much for doing it and it makes all this possible and it's within the realm of probable that you're going to hear us in another five seconds (laughs) with more beer and more shit Caleb what's that I'm going to drink a Founders Brewing Porter, which has the subtitle of Dark, Rich, and Sexy, which is, mm. uh, you're selling yourself pretty high, so. Right. Yeah. I like, yeah, I mean. All right, he's taking a If sip. it's all those things, then I, I want to talk. His face, facial expression has not really changed yeah, that much. It doesn't seem like to light he's up. Thinking. Yeah. yeah. It's a Ready Player One. Him hawing. That's is a, that a three? three? Yeah, it's a three. It's got a little, uh, it's got a little smoke on the end of it, but. Not remarkably so. Right. It's it's a solid porter, but it's not very sweet. It's not doing anything super interesting. I've got to say, um, dark, rich, and or sexy. We that, like it's that, a three dark, rich, and sexy. Like that's that average. No. Yeah, it's average. Dark, rich, like, and sexy. I'm okay with it. You know, I've got to say that one of the reasons I I bought this beer for us yesterday is that a listener whose name I forget at the moment. I'm totally sorry about that. Wrote in a few weeks ago and mentioned that we hadn't really tried or reviewed much Founders beer. Mm-hmm. And typically, I like a lot of Founders beer. That Breakfast Stout is one of the best mm. things I've ever Breakfast had. Breakfast Stout's great, yeah. Um, and uh, but but it struck me that we hadn't done a lot of Founders beer for one reason or the other. I do so. like I do like them because they go hard in the paint on stouts and porters, and mm-hmm. they they're brewing darker yeah, stuff. They they get up in it. They're not like beholden to the IPA game like no. every other brewery. No, they do have that all-day IPA that isn't bad, though. Yeah. Um, so, Caleb, I'm going to try this porter uh, and see if I agree with you or not on this three business. But while I try this, uh, why don't you lead us into Drunk Enough, our typically after the Patreon wall segment. So we were struggling for a topic this week, I'm not going to lie. And on the Mix 6 Facebook page... Uh, Thaddeus uh, Stocklasa, one of you know, friend of RPPR, friend of Mix Six, friend of many podcasts, um, has said that uh, he laughed pretty hard because of the iTunes reviews. We had the one negative review that said we virtue signal, uh, to which there was a pretty long and and weighty discussion to talk about academics and social media about what that term really means. So, not to belabor the one negative review we have on our iTunes account, but you know still fuck that guy but not to belabor that let's just academically dissect the term of virtue signaling because i think there's some worth and it's the only worth to be had in the term in dissecting how dumb that is as a phrase on so many different metrics 
Uh, yeah. yeah. So what I don't want to do here is I don't want I don't want to write off the criticism, right? And just say, well, you've criticized this thing that I pour some time, energy, effort, heart into. Therefore, you must be wrong because yeah. that, that's an inappropriate way to treat criticism. You know, I want to write off this criticism. Yeah, I think I don't I, think this has value. Uh, I think, I think I we've do. had other values and we have definite flaws, but yeah. I don't think this is the one. I think I want to write this one off, but I don't know that I want to write this one off carte blanche. I do think I want to explore at least the idea of the criticism to make sure we're not doing the thing that I think we're. Ho- I hope we're not doing, mm-hmm. and that maybe that one person has, has has spotted us for having done, which is this, the nature of virtue signaling. Yeah. Um, so just you know, like brief personal anecdote. Um, I, of the three of us sitting at this table, am the least versed to putting things of their own name on the internet and dealing with the the backlash, good or positive, for that. And so I'm probably the most affected by these things when I see that someone doesn't like a thing that we've done. And I might be catching up to producer Ross in recent months. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, I, I rallied hard in the end. I was way behind, but man... <laughs> I'm right on your tail yeah. now. I mean, you know, yeah. you guys, you guys, you know, it rolls off the back pretty easily because you deal with it um, at least more frequently than I do, but just by way of volume, yeah. you do more stuff. So this one caught me off guard. Um, you know, not that we get a ton of negative feedback, although if we got a bunch of negative feedback, it would probably suggest we weren't doing a very good job. But the yeah. negative feedback we do get, I do take personally, uh, not so much because I think it's an attack on me, but because I want to make sure that. We're doing something that I think is of value, which I'm already hypersensitive to because sometimes I question the whole bit. Part of accepting constructive criticism is opening yourself up to destructive criticism. That's right. It's very easy to say, like, I don't want to deal with the haters. That's right. And then accept that you are perfect, and then you look behind you and you become Kanye. Right, right. Um, Exactly. Yeah, and you don't don't want that. No, don't consider this us rallying against one negative review. This is rather kind of an interrogation of... The interrogation we ourselves have gone through is like, am I doing that? Right. And like, in this case, we come up with the conclusion, or at least I have, that... No, I'm right. not. That guy's the, full but of shit. Yeah, this is but the, you have to go through that individual adjudication process right. every single time this if is you don't want to be an asshole. Letting you into the conversation on Kate, the, the conversations that we have had about whether or not what we're doing isn't just in some weird way, right? Just a gut check. Yeah. Are we just saying things that we think people want to hear? Or are we just picking kind of like, uh, you know, lights in the distance uh, and then swinging for those things? Or is this like an honest assessment of the self? Are we doing, are we doing and saying things that we believe to be true and really authentic? way uh and just so happen to align with like positive or negative cultural values and so this is this is our way of saying to you yeah this is how we resolve this thing and we we don't take that as smut smatter we we think that's a reasonable conclusion people could reach and we're going to tell you you know our reasoned assumption about what we're doing what we're doing here all right well let's stop abstracting though let's get down to the brass tacks of the term so virtue signaling i think in in my perception when that term has value, and it's rare, uh, when that term has value, it is a representation of saying you are for something or against something as a means of social fashion. Yeah. And not truly in your action doing so. Sure. Um, and I think that is a fair criticism of something that legitimately occurs on the internet. Yeah. Um, and so that is where I have to, and that's where the term starts. Sure. Um, at this point, it's been co opted by certain people that I no longer value that meaning right. of it. But um, that's where I started at. That's where I started at. Is like, oh, God, are we doing that? Are we just trying to sound progressive? Are we just trying to sound for and against certain things? Yeah. And not actually living a life being for or against certain sure. things. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, for me, um, 
you know, the first question that I had when I read the review wasn't the, – the first thought in my mind wasn't, fuck that guy, don't listen. <clears throat> it was like, oh, my God. Am I not authentically articulating how I feel about things in a way that they feel authentic? Am, am I sounding like a voice box for virtue? Yeah. Which is not something I would ever want to do, not because I think that's bad, but because I think it's inauthentic. Like that, because for me, sometimes I hear people who have a podcast voice who I know personally, and they sound differently when I hear them. And I go, what are you putting on there? Um, I don't, and, and my, my singular goal all the time is to not have a different conversation with the two of you than I would ever have that we, than if we were sitting around my kitchen table talking about things. Yeah, exactly. That was the premise of this podcast. That's right. It's like, we get drunk in a bar and have these conversations. Right. Maybe someone else would like want to listen to this. Yeah. That was the whole impetus of the podcast. Exactly. And so my, my immediate concern was, is there something that I don't hear? Where I'm, where, where we are putting on a, a facade that I don't hear us put on any other time, and 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 no is the answer in my mind. But again, I'm biased because it's us. Yeah. So the other question then is like, what value do I think the term has? Right. And I'm a little bit with you that for me, the term virtue signaling has become akin to the term fake news. It it becomes it's the, a right wing buzzword. Well, I don't I don't want to associate no, I, I, it dog I, I, I won't say right wing. It's an alt right buzzword. Yeah. I don't I don't even I don't even want necessarily want to associate it with a political ideology or That's a left fair. or a right thing. I do, but but I, you know, <laughs> mine, mine's a more functional rather than ideological position. My my functional position is that it seems like virtue signaling, much like fake news for me, which are both probably attributed to ideological positions, are. Um, cognitive shortcuts to blunt the significance or the force or the substance of a thing. I don't want to grasp the issue or I don't want to get into the meat of a thing, so I just want to call it virtue signaling and get to its its l- largest, farthest logical conclusion and just say, therefore, the thing is X. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I want to lump this thing into a category as quickly and as efficiently as possible and then do away with all of the nuance or the substance around the thing. So do I think uh, that there is a risk that what we do is virtue signaling? Is there a risk? Yeah, probably. Uh, Do I think that's what we do? No, not so much. I think that by and large, we often go longer than I would like to go on some segments trying to excuse or make a light of all of the landmines we might step on while discussing Mm -hmm. a thing. You know, point in case a couple of episodes ago, we kind of talked at length about the nature of masculinity. Yeah. And look, we flat out stepped on some landmines, and some people on Facebook and the Patreon right, and Twitter called us out on it. Have been like, have been appropriately, uh, and yeah. I take that criticism to heart. I and do. this is why I feel like virtue signaling, especially in this specific uh, specific context, was the bullshit. Uh, criticism right. because like that stuff I'm like oh man I need to reexamine some things. Right, right. Like I took that to heart and I tried to readjust. Whereas this guy. Yeah, fuck this guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's the that's the crux. Where is that line? Right. Where is the line between like, oh, okay, I need to reexamine that or, ah, oh, no, this guy's a douchebag. Yeah. And we can only really approach that through a specific example. And in this specific example, we're just talking about it at length. Right. Yeah. So the line for me is all, there's always two conditions, right? Like one is what do I think I'm doing? And I, to, to be honest, I'm a little bit biased about that. Yeah. By and large, I generally think I'm trying to do the best thing. Obviously. Um, that being said, sometimes I'm pretty open when I feel like I am not the best cat. I am not the best messenger for for this thing mm-hmm. right I, I often talk about how i'm not very articulate about certain things or my voice is literally unappealing and such that i don't understand how people want to listen to it the <laughs> other condition that i use is what do i think about our listeners right 
And one of the things that struck me most about the virtue signaling comment is that to assume then that that was true, it would have to assume that the people who listen to us and, and enjoy what we do yeah. are of a certain intellect or of a certain critical lens such that they would be duped into inauthentic virtue signaling. Yeah, as if we had the power That's to right. sort of like manipulate them into some sort of facade. And frankly, most of the people that listen to us are smarter than we are. Yes. <laughs> and not, I think very few of them would put up with this idea of just platitude, right? Just ideological platitude. Um, for yeah, believing you're time. capable of virtue signaling effectively is sort of like the ultimate uh, egotism. Yeah. Like saying like, oh, yeah, no, I can totally dupe you into feeling like I have like good ver- qualities that I don't have. Right. Um, that's sort of like – and it's also inherently paradoxically against the very psychological impotence of feeling like you have to – you know, like convince people you have positive qualities that you don't have, like the sort of insecurity that would develop you into trying to do that right. sort of precludes the ability to think, well, I do that so well, they're all fucking fooled. Like it, it right. doesn't make any sense. Like right. why, why would you be motivated to do it and psych and, and uh, effective at it? That's right. That's yeah. right. I mean, to, to be clear, the, the people that I talk to regularly about the substance of this podcast and, and the conversations that you see spin out on Patreon and Facebook and Twitter um, of the of the topics, the conversations that we're having, they are more in depth. They are uh, more developed than the conversations we are having on the podcast. So the idea that these people are somehow more cognitively or intellectually shallow enough, or more more shallow than we are, such that we could con them into thinking. Yeah, all we're doing is saying buzzwords. Yeah, and I couldn't be more thrilled that like our conversation is a springboard into better bar conversations amongst real people in a real set. I check Patreon and Facebook religiously after we post episodes because I'm genuinely interested in the things people are saying about the ideas that we're talking about because it's it's an extension of the what kinds of things... I'm not bringing it up because I know what I think about it. I'm bringing it up as an investigation. Right. And you continue that in the comments and like hopefully around a table with your friends while after having a few beers yes because that's yeah. the nature of the premise right that, that these are things that we sit down and we get drunk at you know shitty dive bar and talk about and yeah. they go oh we should talk about that and see what other people think i mean we're just inviting more people to the table that's absolutely right so for me you know the the the, the problem there is that virtue signaling would suggest some call to an end of the conversation to align me with the greater that zeitgeist. i've never and you've never made and we've never made it to the end i mean <laughs> that's kind of the point most of these are the first time we've discussed a thing or the first iteration of the thing kind of like getting put on the table, right, wrong, or otherwise. And sometimes there's some risk involved in that. See the conversation about masculinity or cognitive dissonance where obviously we said some things that were not particularly well received. But the difference is, and I think this is the other important thing here, the the thing that I have to tell myself the more we do this about the nature of criticism on the internet, which is all just a coping mechanism for me, is that some criticism is substantive, and some criticism is not. And so the people who have but been— But you do sort of go down a rabbit hole yeah. deciding which is which. I do. But like the people who have benevolently said, for example, there's this really great review on Patreon, I thought, um, after the conversation about masculinity. Um, and one of the commenters said, look, I appreciate that you even tried to have this conversation. But you failed. But you failed. And here's where, here's where I think you, you got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Because I want to consider that deeply now. And right. have. That's right. Uh, Melissa Sundwall, who's a good friend of ours mm-hmm. um, and who, who is— uh, you know, who is a trained 
uh, podcasting uh, yourself on those same issues on gender on, issues on the reg right yeah. who is an expert in this thing who's having gender issues all the time you know we were having dinner the other night and she said to me you know look i I think this is a difficult topic, and I think it's pretty hard to wade, especially if you're two, you know, white hetero guys, yeah. to have a conversation about the nature of masculinity and gender. She said, "But you know, I appreciate that you tried to do it, which I think is a nice way of saying I didn't totally agree on everything that you said, but I appreciate that you tried to have it." And that, for me, there's some substance there. Like, okay, well, look, and we're two white cisgender guys, so we exist off attaboys. That's and right. Thank you. That's it's right. Fueled me for months to come. Right. There, there was at least <laughs> I need your approval. There definitely. was some benevolence there, right? There was like there was a look. I. I See what you're getting at, yeah. And then there was an introduction or an entrance to here are the substantive things that I think are wrong about what you've said. Mm-hmm. And again, that for me is substantive. There's an explanation of depth as as compared to what I think has become uh, terministic and teleki. Right? Let me run this thing to the end of its line and then use the. It, it's it's the it's the equivalent of saying, "Well, you're Hitler." You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's like, okay, well, that's there's no depth there anymore. You've just you've run a thing up against its limit. And accuse me of that, and so I, yeah, you know, to get back, this is not about this is not about correcting a bad iTunes review. It's about the interrogation of God. It is fucking brutal the first time you get a really negative iTunes review, and 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 what it forces you to really ask yourself. Yeah, when that happens, versus the alternative of fuck everyone, I'm always right. Right, everything we do is gold. Yeah, I, I never want to get there. No, because everything we do isn't gold. In fact, very little of what we do, I think, is gold. We, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We took a whole episode off the internet because we thought it wasn't gold. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'm yeah, much yeah. more interested in us put, putting stuff out here that, I, that I'm at least willing to not defend but have a conversation about if I'm not willing to defend it. Well, you didn't take the episode off the internet. You just told me not to put it up at all. Don't put it on the internet. Yeah, yeah. yeah so don't, you, it's, there's a episode. There's a lost episode. Right. That will never yeah. be posted. Because it was shit. Because no. like we got into some stuff, and once we re, once we kind of set thought about it, no, it wasn't very good. It, and more to the point, it it was an episode in which we didn't open up the risk that there was other conversation to be had. Mm-hmm. We kind of landed on some of this stuff sucks. Oh wow! All right, and yeah. and there's no there's no door there, and this for me is very much about opening a door to finding out what other people. It's not even are. a conversation; it's no. just about how wrong we are. Right, that's yeah. right, and I'm interested in that because yeah. because I, we do live in such a bubble, and I'm fascinated by the limits of the bubble, and I'm fascinated by the nature of this conversation, not between the three of us, but between us and all of these wonderful people who listen to this shit, who get into this, and want to have a conversation beyond my understanding, your understanding, your understanding of this stuff. And so, for me, the problem with this virtue signaling complaint is it assumes that we're trying to end the conversation before it begins by just saying, oh, no, we are in line with the value, and obviously everyone else is in line with the value, so let's just all keep moving down the path. And that's, that's not the fucking point, Producer Rust. Well, in my experience, anyone who says virtue signaling as a criticism, as like a negative thing, or like um, it, it 100% in my experience is someone who believes that it is categorically impossible to actually believe in the thing that you are, you know, virtue signaling. So if you're a man, you cannot possibly fit, be feminist because you are a man. Like, and if you say you're a feminist, you're just yeah. virtue signaling to get laid. Like, and that's their worldview, and you cannot break that person of it, and you can safely ignore it. See, uh, that's my experience. Okay, that was my response to it. So yeah. my, my response was not nearly as deep, as insightful as yours, Spencer's. I really like yours. But my response to it in terms of like analyzing the virtue signaling tome and deciding whether it was valid or not, and I decided not, Right, was to analyze what virtue I was signaling. Right. And so uh, obviously in the gender discussion, it was like, you know, 
I need to give up my parts of my toxic masculinity. I understand it's an imperfect process that I'm in the process of doing. Yeah. And to do so are, you know, racism uh, or prejudice or any kind of thing like that. I was analyzing the virtues. I was. So what I came to the conclusion of, which is far less deep than yours, it was based on basic rhetoric. Um, it's an ad hominem attack. It's completely unsubstantive of the issue. Sure. So you're assuming I'm being good for the sake of the social gain I get from being good. Yeah. If my good is a critique of your argument, which is not good, right. the fact that I have a motive for it, completely divorced from your actual argument, right. is not a response to the actual argument. Right. Like saying that I have some sort of vanity in my ethics yeah. does not preclude me from having ethics, as we had in a previous conversation. That's right. Um, so it's completely uh, non sequitur. It, right. has, it has nothing to do with the topic at hand. Yeah. Um, furthermore, when we talk about virtue... Um, and we talk about like what it means to have virtue and like it being sort of this disregarded. It's always people that believe like virtue is impossible. I'm the performative of it identity guy. We've we've gotten that before. I feel yeah. like you perform your identity. You choose a role. Right. Even if I assume that true belief is impossible, even if I assume that like true meaning is impossible, and that I just perform an identity. I've chosen amongst all identities I could choose yeah. to perform the identity of a good guy. Right. You have chosen amongst all identities you could prove to play Ed Harris in Westworld. Yeah. 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 Whose identity is solely based on power and fear. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Right. I am fine with saying that I'm objectively better than that. Yeah. If we're assuming that we can pick any hat we want we can do whatever we want and say whatever we want in a fully nihilistic universe where meaning isn't real. It's just a place to occupy ourselves in a social hierarchy. If I choose good guy who doesn't shit on people right. and you choose asshole who shits on everything, I still feel okay sure. regardless of the motives of that choice. That's right. I'm still perfectly fine with that. That's right. You you chose to go that way. That says a lot about who you are psychologically and biologically right. that I don't want to have said about myself. Even if I'm performing the actions of a good man and not truly a good man via whatever level of authenticity you're using to judge this useless ad hominem attack of virtue signal – even assuming you are completely 100% right, right, I am completely 100% okay with that. Sure, absolutely. Like, yeah. and, and that's where I like, got off the boat on that criticism. Yeah. I'm like, all right, you're right. I feel all right about it. You're completely wrong. I also feel all right about yeah. it. This is not constructive in any way, shape, or form. Right. I'm going to listen to people who's like, oh, man, you got a point there. Right. Like, that's what I'm going to do to or, alter myself. Or I appreciate what you were trying to do there, but you missed, and here's how you missed. Yes, right? like, exactly. Okay, well, yeah, no, I can, I, yeah, I can figure that out. Yeah, we shouldn't have used the word testicle in a conversation about masculinity. Mm. Okay, whoops, you know, I get exactly. that. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, right. no. Yeah, total, total I have a lot up. of places I need to, like, shore myself up. Yep. And I notice that I acknowledge that there's also work that's probably never going to end. Right. No, um, it's not. And you know why it's not? Because part of the premise of this is that... I'm fighting against a society and a culture and thousands of years of history. And... Um, I'm one dude. I'm going to do my best, but that's it. And sobriety. Like, guys, <laughs> the premise of this show is that we get drunker the more difficult things get. Like, sometimes 
I don't have a good filter or even a good word in the English language to say the things I want to say, and so we're gonna I'm gonna step on an alligator's face occasionally. Like Yeah, like I'm not gonna like get so drunk that I like I hit Spencer and tell him it's his fault I yet. did it. We're not assholes intrinsically. Right. But I am gonna get drunk enough to where I pick the wrong metaphor. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like like uh, Will Smith who has to deal with Hey, a, thanks uh, so much for listening, everybody. <laughs> if, you, if you made it this far out and it wasn't a free episode. And right segue. They have to find uh, you were a backer at at least the $2 level. It's also possible because we haven't made a content calendar for some of this stuff yet that you got all of this for free, and I hope you really enjoyed it. Either way, if you're not following us on Twitter, we're at the mix 6 and Facebook, facebook.com slash TheMix6. If you are a backer on Patreon, thank you so much for your support. And if you're not a backer on Patreon, thanks for just listening. We really appreciate it. You can also find us on patreon.com slash TheMix6 if you'd ever like to give additional money, which would allow us to do even more. We are slowly creeping up. What are you up. giggling over there? Producer for Ross is just gone. <laughs> Professional uh, my ass. Right, out on December 22nd on Netflix. We're slowly creeping up onto our $1,500 backer level, which would, of course, get us to do yet another insane thing. And thank you so much. Such as release three episodes a month, which would uh, increase the amount of beer that we're already drinking, which is what we're doing right now, by a whole six beers a month, not to mention the hot takes we record at the top of these things. So anyways, all that to say, we love you so much for everything that you do, that we literally wouldn't do this if you people weren't listening and engaging with us on Patreon and Facebook and Twitter, letting us know where we're going right and where we're going wrong. Um, if you haven't rated or reviewed on iTunes, please feel free to. And on that note, I'm Spencer. I'm Caleb. This has been The Mix 6, and thanks so much for listening. We'll see you Christmas next time. Christmas episode will be all right. We're leaving now. <laughs>